Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And uh, today, we're really excited to be launching our first uh, Accessibility Saturday. So the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about accessibility. And also, as you may notice, if you're watching the program, figuring out the best ways, best practices uh, to actually achieve accessibility in our streams. So we're really excited to have uh, a lot of uh, special guests that will be coming on in the second hour. We'll be talking, kicking this off with a, a discussion of disability awareness and etiquette, but we'll also have uh, Sherry Turpin on, and she's going to be talking a little bit about uh, some of the issues that are coming up uh, for um, accessibility. And so we will uh, discuss that in the second hour. So stay tuned. It should be a great one. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First in, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, what is the easiest way to convert a bunch of red camera files for producer viewing? MP4, thanks. You know, I, I, I have to admit that a lot of us aren't using red cameras at this point. Uh, uh, you know, I think that a lot of that has, red has been pinched a little bit in, in parts of the market. So in the film, a lot of the film market and for specific reasons, for instance, Global Shutter, uh, there have been reasons to use red, but I think a lot of times Sony and Blackmagic and and uh, and even Canon and Panasonic have all grouped to a place that that really red um, opened up for everybody else. So um, so I think it's it's been a little bit of a challenge. Um, what I would do right now to do those conversions is probably use uh, Resolve. So I'd probably bring those into um, bring your files into Resolve. I don't believe. Uh, I haven't tried to do it with compressor. Compressor might work and also media encoder or something I'd look at. But from a red raw perspective, uh, we used to use actually red's own software to do this. So there's a batch software that red made that we could import everything. But I, I admit that I, I haven't, haven't used it for a couple of years. Yeah, go ahead, Mitch. Alex, would you go to a mezzanine format, uh, to, to edit in, even though it's not normal to, to do that with red, like go from red to ProRes? Uh, not really. I mean, the, the problem is once you, because I, I believe Final Cut will read Red Raw at this point. Um, and so, it, you know, in, and a lot of programs will, I know Resolve will. Uh, and, and I think that the issue is that once you start building those mezzanines, it gets a little messy. Like it can get messy to do the edits and, and the machines today are pretty fast. Um, they should be able to, uh, do the debarring that's required to make that work. So I, um, it, it's a, you can do it, and then you start having EDLs. It just depends on if, if you're building a full film project or a high, you know, um, a high value project. You can absolutely go to ProRes. It's going to perform better. It's going to render previews better. You're 100 percent right. It's just that the EDL process and the relinking process sometimes can be uh, hectic. So if I was if I was going to do something that is a relatively low budget, I probably would not not do that. And I or I would just convert to ProRes do all the color correction or most of the color correction, convert to ProRes as 4444, and then finish it there as, as a, you know, knowing that I'm close enough that with 10-bit or 12-bit color, I can get to wherever I need to go. So if I was doing it fast, I probably, to your point, I'm now reversing myself as I talk, um, but I would um, convert to ProRes if I was moving fast and then expect to do relinking and EDLs if I'm going uh, if I'm going to do a large film project uh, with uh, with red with red cameras, uh, next question from Michael Smith in Silverado, California. Thought some of the panelists may be interested that Sound Devices Mix Pre Two live streaming event is coming up June 19th at 11 a.m. Central Time. Tips on using your Mix Pre Two mixer recorders in advanced mode from support specialist 
and mixed pre master Laura Salampa. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, I saw that and I registered. Uh, what's interesting about the registration is you can ask your questions when you register. So it'll be all there uh, when you come in on Monday to uh, to watch the program. Looking forward to it. I do have a mixed pre uh, in my future, so uh, it should be what, interesting. What platform is it on? Uh, the stream? I don't know. I mean, I registered for it. It didn't say specifically. It's no, sounds good. Anyway, uh, uh, I think maybe a bunch of us might jump in. It's 11 o'clock CDT is 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard, and that's when we get out of here. So it might be convenient for us to just finish here and go over. And and so definitely check that out. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can post the link to register um, both in, in uh, Discord, but as well as in, in this forum. Uh, next question. Next one in from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. The LG transparent OLED walls at Infocom were very intriguing. Do you think that these could be used for Zoom meetings? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So what he's talking about, I've got it right here. I did uh, some of the, uh, well, I passed by the LG booth. I went through the LG booth. These are the transparent OLED signage walls that they have. So you can basically see it. There's a few companies that are doing this technology now. Uh, Muxware, I think, was the first one I saw when I walked through Infocom's uh, Infocom's booth. But uh, what's really cool about this is is things like this, where you can actually make a a nice wall. There's a plant sitting; you can't see it because of the reflections, but there's a plant sitting right there. Using it in the Zoom, I suppose you could put a uh, interface glass in front of the of, of yourself, but you're going to get a lot of glare. You're going to have to try and figure out how to get through that. I don't think it's going to work in the Zoom that well, but you know, give it a try if you got one. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was thinking Jeffrey in post if I was doing something to go on that. Uh, do you do you send black through to make it opaque? Did they give you any indication of how you would post for that? Because you don't have a... Uh, well, no, I really... Yeah, I really didn't ask them a, that type of question because, you know, I wasn't thinking of Zoom. If I was to do it in Zoom, I would make sure that I'd have a really dark background, well lit to me, and then, of course, the glass, uh, uh, and, uh, and, of course, nothing that would cause any type of glare on the glass itself. So it'd be, it'd be a process, but it's not impossible. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia is here on the panel and asking this question. Are there recommended software to create shorts for social media, possibly AI? Go ahead, John. One we're using is called Opus.pro and it's pretty darn good. We're using it for shorts right now. We're taking our long form content and processing it through there and it's working out well. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So Premiere Pro, I'm, I've been using the beta of Premiere Pro because uh, they have the vertical options. Uh, uh, you have the different types of um, of tabs on top, and one of them is vertical, so it just puts it all in there. It works really well. Uh, one funny thing about, about Apple is I really wish that they would make uh, iMovie set up so it would take vertical video because right now what you have to do is you have to take the video, you have to turn it 90 degrees, do your edits, and then uh, flip it back. You know, once you process it, uh, flip it back. But the graphics do not, for some reason, they don't turn 90 degrees. So you have to pre-think the graphics 
and anything you can't put lower thirds or anything like that on her or else it'll look really weird when it's finally in its vertical format so but uh, rush also does uh, a vertical format and of course i'm expecting uh, I, I just did my first final cut pro at infocom uh with a vertical format so that worked pretty well and of course resolve does vertical as well i go ahead uh, uh brett there's also uh a few different mobile solutions for for making YouTube shorts, um, but I agree with uh, Jeffrey and uh, Final Cut Pro makes it pretty easy, and um, iMovie certainly has its limitations. I go ahead, Tony. And if you gentlemen can just share the cost of those uh, packages, please. I believe that um, well, iMovie is free, <laughs> and I believe Premiere, you need to have the the you need to get a full like kind of the full adobe license right jeffrey uh well for premiere you can get premiere on its own which i believe is around 25 to 30 dollars uh, for the year uh, i think it's i don't, no. I don't think no premiere. well it's about 600 dollars for the whole package a year uh right. for one individual one so and then of course resolve uh, you have the free version and i'm not sure i haven't i paid a long time ago for the resolve uh so i don't remember what the price is uh, yeah, so Resolve is $300 uh, for the pro version, but there's nothing that I, I, all of the vertical video and all the other tools that you would need are free in Resolve. So that that wouldn't that wouldn't cost you anything. Of course, you've got Final Cut Pro, which is working on the iPad now, um, and it, it does do vertical video and square video. Um, and uh, I think it's $5 a month, I think, I believe, or that's what the, that's what the plan is there. Um, LumaFusion is another one that, that um, does do vertical and square. And so, and it's really natively um, was designed for iPad. Both LumaFusion and iPad and, and Final Cut on the iPad are pretty impressive. Uh, the most of the creators that I've worked with that are doing these are either using the native app. So they're using the native TikTok app or, you know, they're, or they're using, um, uh, I think it's called Envision, which is, uh, I think it's the, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a kind of a social app that's there. I'm sorry, Enlighten, <laughs> Enlighten, Enlight. uh, it's from the same fo folks that do, uh, the face, face tuning, um, uh, uh, still app. And then, uh, the big one though, for, a, a vast majority of social folks that I've worked with are using Final Cut, you know, and and a lot of it has to do with speed. So, um, so when we work the smaller, fo the the like sub five hundred thousand uh, follower group is using uh, most of the ones that we work with that we've worked with in the past have been using the native apps that they that they have there, uh, or they're using whatever app. When we get when we see them go over about a million, uh, it's eighty ninety percent are Final Cut. You know, like it's and it and it, a lot of it has to do with cost. It doesn't; they don't have to keep on paying a, a a rental fee, and it also has to do with speed. That they're trying to get a lot of stuff out quickly, and the magnetic timeline for them is is really uh, much faster. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, really quick. Uh, well, Wirecast and VMix both have uh, vertical options, so you can actually record vertical videos as for post editing in the uh, sixteen by nine for or nine by sixteen. I always mess that up. Uh, format. Plus, uh, things like the OBSBOT, uh, inside the software, you can say, I want this as a vertical video, and it'll actually flip at 90 degrees. You then also have the in-stream from Yolo Box, and they have a PTZ camera that also does vertical and horizontal videos. And, and I admit that when, when I'm doing uh, vertical videos, I almost never shoot vertically. Um, I almost always, unless I'm doing something really, really fast, uh, I almost always shoot 4K 
uh, horizontally, and then I pan and scan inside of that. It gives me an enormous amount of of work, you know, room to work in even 6K <laughs> at, at times, but it allows me to pan and scan inside of that, and which I found to be um, pretty pretty useful. Um, next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks Poly Studio P21 personal meeting monitor at B and H for eighty nine dollars. Best for Zoom meetings or Amazon resale? QI, USB-C, great mic, and cam. And there's a link. Go ahead, John. I've been in the video conferencing and streaming business since the mid-90s. Anytime I see a dedicated piece of hardware, I know it's failure. Every one of those, including what you have, Paul, which is the the Facebook, uh, whatever it's called, which is now obsolete. So uh, another piece of dedicated hardware, no good. It's... You know, I think that, you know, possibly for throwing into a room that, that you just want kind of a general purpose, it, it could be useful. I, I think that if you're going to use something at home on anything that matters, it's probably not going to be a, a great device. Um, the all-in-ones, as, as was outlined by John, uh, oftentimes are pretty challenging to, you know, you're, it's a generalized service, not the specific things that we, that we usually care about. Um, so I, I'd be very surprised if... Uh, if it was effective at the level that we're used to, um, but throwing it into a room where someone can interact or having it in a, in a breakout or something like that might be, might be there to let people kind of know that you're there. But, but I don't, I don't know if it'd be much more useful than that. Go ahead, Tony. Uh, well, I was put, I was putting my hand down, Alex, because you basically said what I was getting ready to say. I have a use case for it and uh, a question coming up soon. Yep. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So also at Infocom, we saw a lot of different uh, conference room situations. Uh, Logitech was really big on do, uh, um, the, the conference room, not only just with the cameras, but also with, uh, with uh, door placards and, and things like that. HP has been in this business a lot longer than a lot of the other companies, I will say that. So when they do it, I'm not saying that they, they know how to do it right. They don't have the secret sauce but they do have a good working knowledge on setting up conference rooms for uh for this type of uh conferencing so if there and if, if anybody has a chance of this working it would be hp go ahead brent can't hear you brent there was an after hours discussion uh, earlier this week and um somebody had uh one of these sitting on their desk um it was a little glitchy, certain features of it, but um, the the overall idea was pretty cool. But uh, somebody did mention that uh, to be really effective, it should be like a nice 55-inch screen instead of uh, um, a, a small little desktop one to be able to use it in a conference room or something like that. Yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see where all of this goes related to conference rooms. Uh, the, the biggest problem with conference rooms are the, is the glass. <laughs> the, the glass is really the hard, the hardest part to, to, to manage. It's not really the, the, the hardware, it's the hard surfaces um, that, that really make uh, many, many conference rooms almost, into, almost impossible to manage. And so, um, you know, and I, I think that companies, what we found during COVID was that a lot of C-suite, you know, the executives just didn't realize how bad their conference rooms were because they weren't in them. You know, they were they were in them, but they weren't ever coming in remotely. They were always at the conference room, having it all seem fine to them, um, but it just didn't seem fine to anybody else that was there. They all all you can hear is echo, and you know, a lot of times with speaker mics and so on and so forth. It's really 
um, pretty uh, egregious. Uh, you know, most of the time, um, most of us who have had to sit in hours and hours of those meetings are just trying to figure out what they're saying. We're not really, you know, paying attention to the conversation as much as just trying to grok what was is actually happening. Um, and so uh, I think that there's, I think you're going to see a huge opportunity for a variety of um, installers and so on and so forth to probably rebuild the conference rooms from the ground up. You know, it hasn't happened yet, but it, when companies finally give up on the fact that they're the, a, lot, a third of their employees are never coming back, like they're always going to be remote, um, they're going to have, then they're going to have to take into account that they have to um, support them. And the couple, a couple of, w- of ways to do that is to uh, rethink their conference rooms 100%. Like just not not like a little, but you got to get. You really don't need all those whiteboards anymore, you know, like that that are causing a lot of audio echo. Uh, one big screen that's shared uh, among iPads or other devices is enough to to have the conversations that are required. Generally, um, you're also gonna. Um, I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna find that. And now that they have more space, a lot of companies are gonna rethink also the shared. Uh, you know, kind of the open office, which was probably the worst office design in hundred years. Um, and, uh, and they're going to start thinking about booths for their employees. So if you come into the office, you're going to have something that is relatively quiet that you can interact with people that are online or other people in the company, but it's all kind of quieted down. Um, so I think that we're going to see, it's a pretty big opportunity for, um, folks that are thinking that, that do this for a business. <laughs> Next question. Next question in from Andy Kokendorfer and Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, can I please get your opinion on sticker graphic to promote clear Zoom mic use in Firefox. Yes, the emotional deal is intended. Yeah, I, I don't know if we're going to get it up or not or to show it, but it's a it's a it's a little Firefox with uh, with a good mic, and it uh, it says I think it says "Be kind, be clear," <laughs> which is really good. Uh, so I, I I applaud the the graphic. Uh, next question, uh, Tony Mobley from Newton, Georgia, and here on our panel. Tony asked, I have an 80-year-old House of Worship user who I got the Poly Studio P21 monitor for. What is a low-cost computer I can add to the device for Zoom worship services? I got it, Tony. So this, this particular uh, parishioner is coming into the worship service on a landline. And this was, I thought, a solution to be able to bring her into the worship service on Zoom in a more positive way. So I'm looking for a computer that I can add to the P21 monitor that will allow her to be able to participate fully in the worship experience. You know, I think that a lot of them, it it really just depends on um, whether you're trying to get full resolution or not. And so if you're dealing with a, with us, you know, a 360p, uh, account, then many, many PCs uh, will work. The, 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 the um, uh, you know, all the little stick PCs as well as the smaller ones. I think I have one sitting around here somewhere. Um, yeah, this little, uh, this little guy here, uh, this is the uh, Melee Quieter 3Q would probably be enough to run it. Um, but otherwise, I think that, you know, if you want the full resolution, I think that as, as you start to get the price closer and closer to uh, $500, then you're probably looking at the base Mac mini to do that. But these are, this is about $250, I think, um, to, to make that actually happen. So, um, it'll be, you will have more support calls (laughs) with this. So your trade then, then you will with the Mac mini. So your trade-off will be time and money, you know, as far as, uh, what it, 
what it takes to actually get it done. Uh, next question. Kirsten Osterkamp from Germany asking, how can I further improve my Brio camera video quality? Brio MacBook Pro M1 using webcam settings app. Go ahead, Brent. I would say the first thing I would review is your lighting. Um, and uh, at the very minimum, have some type of a ring light set up. But the more that you can have a nice, large light source that's uh, diffused and, and the right coloring, uh, the, the Brio really shines with a, with a good light source. Go, Jeffrey. So I'm going to show you a little secret here with your Brio. You do this, you take this, and you just kind of take that off. Just throw that away. Take that. <laughs> so it's so scary when you do it the first time. We we have a lot of Brios, <laughs> yeah. and and they didn't do something that would screw out. They just did something you just push in or pull out, and you feel like you're ripping the camera in half uh, when you when you disengage it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then you have a quarter inch on the bottom, which you can then put onto a tripod. Eye level. That's that's a key right there. This thing has facial tracking in it. So and and window what's they call Windows Hello. So you could actually unlock your Windows computer using the Brio, which is great. Uh, dark background, as dark as you can get, no other things. Try and keep your head in the center because uh, it works best that way and you'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we found is that we actually want the background to be as neutral from a, from a luminance perspective as possible. So very close to yours. What the Brio doesn't seem to handle very well is large contrast areas. And so, um, so what we what we have tended to do is put gray backgrounds behind folks that are using them when we can. If not, we try to manage their backgrounds so that the luminance values, not necessarily the color, but the luminance values are very close um, to what um, they are, um, so that so that the Brio doesn't have to do that much work. Now, with webcam settings, you can make some of those adjustments. What you really care about is yourself. You know, be selfish. Uh, don't worry about the background as far as what, if you're in webcam settings and you're setting those those uh, things, just look at your exposure. Not everybody can, one thing that you can download that is effective to tell, kind of know where you're at is Nob Omniscope. Um, Omniscope is, costs $300 or $400 or something, but the free version will last five minutes at a time. <laughs> so you can open it up for five minutes look at how you're how you're working and then it'll automatically close and you can just reopen it again. Uh, so you can use the the Omniscope for a very long time for free. I have the we we have a paid version of it that we can use, but because we use it all the time, leave it up for shows. It's really designed if you are going to use it for shows, it's designed to um uh, uh to to you know to to be something you leave up all the time. So the the cutoff for five minutes is great when you're getting started. But what you're going to see there is you're going to see levels that go up and down. And what you want to make sure of is where your face is. You're not seeing any of those peak. And what you're looking for is the RGB parade. And you want to make sure that no, nothing is peaking over about 90% in that, in that uh, scope. Um, and and you'll, that will greatly improve. Uh, and really for skin, usually we aim for about 70% in the general luminance. Um, and if you do that, you will, uh, you'll find that the, the, the quality of what the, how the camera looks. And again, big soft lights, the light in front of me is a, I took some uh, rail, I took a maker pipe and, and some EMT rail and built a three by five little window here that has a bunch of lights behind it. And that soft light definitely helps a lot. Um, next question. From Ike Potter in Hanover, Germany asking, what are the best apps to remotely control the iPhone cameras by another iPhone via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi? Simple use cases would be triggering shutter, changing settings and so on. Oh, go ahead, Mandy. 
Good. If you have an Apple Watch, there is an app called Camera Remote on the watch. And when you launch it, this opens the iPhone camera. It gives you controls for the shutter, timer, camera front or rear, flash, live photo, and HDR. Uh, Tony. Uh, I have two. Filmic Pro and the Shoot app by our friend Michael Forrest, who is a part of the community. So both of them will do all of the things that you are asking about. Go ahead, Brent. Uh, just to echo Tony, I was going to mention Filmic Pro. Um, it's a little pricier, and they just changed their uh, model to more of a subscription base, but it works flawlessly, um, and you can edit a ton of video settings um, remotely from one iPhone to another. I go ahead, Jeffrey. And if before that subscription of Filmic Pro, you actually bought Filmic, uh, they have what's called Filmic Legacy, which you can still use, you can still download, and you can still connect to another device and do some remote uh, control there. It probably won't be as robust as Filmic Pro will be, uh, as it's as that one's not going to grow as Filmic Pro is, but it's still very useful. I used it for all my video Infocom this year. Go ahead, Tony. And I am using Shoot App right now, and I have been a past user of Filmic Pro, and both of them work extremely well. Yeah, and I think that, and Mandy, uh, to, to outline, you're talking about remote control with just the built-in uh, uh, camera app for the, for, the, for the iPhone. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So you, so you don't need anything new. Like, you, you can definitely do, if you're just looking for basic operation, you can do it, you can just take the, the watch or, you know, and, and control your, control your uh, iPhone's camera. These other tools give you just a lot more, a lot more little dials to turn and, and so on and so forth. But, but it, it can be done without, without any extra software. Uh, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know, panelists on MacBreak Weekly covered the new Apple Vision Pro headset. What was the verdict? Go, John. This is a two-hour conversation that Alex can can add to but jason jason got a chance to try it out and i suggest you go listen to it i think that this is going to be great by version three and then i look forward to glasses in five years from now yeah and by the way if you have uh questions for the first hour we still have a fair bit more time and and so if you if you uh, uh we've been kind of cutting through these very very quickly so if you're watching the show and you and you have, have any questions go ahead and throw those in for the first hour. Um, and uh, of course, if you have more, more questions for the second hour around etiquette or disabilities, so definitely throw those in as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, obviously I was in that conversation. <laughs> so, so I was, uh, I paid a lot of attention to it. I, you know, I think that, um, I think the headset's going to be a pretty big deal. I don't think, I think that the, uh, and, you know, of course, people can watch whatever. I don't remember what I said, to be honest with you, in, in Mac break, I very rarely, I'm usually in the moment and don't remember anything, you know, as, as I go through that. So, um, uh, the, uh, but I, I think that people should, if you really are curious about this and you're really trying to figure out, um, whether this is viable or not, I would highly recommend watching a lot of the WWDC videos. There are many videos about how, um, how vision works. And I can tell you as someone who's worked with all the headsets and done development work for some of the headsets, the it's the it's the platform and the development tools and the thought process that apple's put to it that is so much more robust than what everybody else has done 
um, you're only requiring iOS and macOS and tvOS developers to step 10% over. They don't have to learn some new thing. They don't have, they can develop with Unity, but they don't have to. Um, they, there are, and, and there's, it's very clear of how to get things done. You have windows, you have volumes, you have spaces, you, you define how those go. And Apple has been extremely good. The videos are extremely good, especially at 2x just in case you're wondering they do talk very very slowly <laughs> so, so so anyway uh if you're watching them on the wwc app the, the wwc app does not have uh speed control so don't do that um uh go to the web page or go to the um, apple tv where you can watch these videos at speed because i don't know how anyone could watch them at 1x they're they're very apple has a very uh uh focused way of talking um, and as they build those out that, that are it's hard to watch at 1x. Um, and so the, um, uh, but at speed, they, uh, they are um, incredible videos that I wish we could see all of education could look like those videos, <laughs> you know, like of, of explaining how something works, how something ties together, how you want to think about it, how to build, build those pieces out. Um, even if you're not a coder, uh, they cut to the code, you just hit the little plus 10 seconds a couple times and go just stay with the theory that they're that they're covering and what you're going to see is an incredible ecosystem this is not a gaming headset this is not a this is a this is an, a computing platform and they've built it out that way and i think that we're in for a ride you know i think this is going to be and i think that it will be expensive but great in day the day it comes out you know, like the day it 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 it, it comes out, it's going to be a pretty great platform to work. It uh, looks work like uh, Alex on. is froze up, so we're going to move on to the next can question until uh, give Alex a little uh, chance to come back. We can in. hear you. Next question I, coming I, no, in from I, Gordon. I, uh, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think. Are you guys hearing me? Okay. Yes. Yeah, you're hearing me. That's that's Mitch. Mitch is breaking up. So um, uh, I think uh, so. Um, anyway, so I think that I think we should keep on. Uh, we should we should watch this very closely. We're going to talk a lot about it. Um, uh, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the, all the tools that are required. We're probably going to be doing some labs as we start to think through some of these things. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's the, so I would definitely pay close attention to it. I think it's easy for us to, it's easy for people to, um, poo-poo the, you know, the first version of things, but I got to tell you that all the money's in the first version. Like if you're developing stuff, like that's where the, you know, every by the time it gets to the third version, the services have been commoditized. Everybody knows how to do it. It's a big deal. And you're competing with a lot of other people. When when it's first, when it's hard, and when there's when it's the beginning, that's when you get yourself established. So we're going to spend a lot of time before the headset is released, getting good at how to use it. And by the way, as we talk about accessibility, the opportunities for accessibility inside the headset is pretty amazing. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, it's really exciting to be able to have the Apple talks a lot about it and there's just lots of places to put things and to add things and annotations and all kinds of other things that I think are going to be revolutionary. So, but I think that we don't want to say, oh, we're going to wait for two or three years and see if we're going to develop for it. Being there out of the gate is going to mean that, you know, a lot of people will buy apps just because their apps on the, on the headset. Um, there's a lot of companies that are going to be looking for how to do this. Um, but I can tell you as someone who mostly rides the beginning of waves and then moves on once it commoditizes, that the time to pay attention to the headset is now, <laughs> not, not uh, two years from now. Next question. And the next question coming in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. The portal from Facebook 
uh, uses used to be good for bumping Zoom meetings to 720p. Does it still have value? Uh, I, I think some people still like to use it. I, I don't know. I have one, but I keep it in a box. I'm, I'm not that excited about leaving a Facebook device opened in my kitchen, you know, or or anywhere else that might be listening. So, um, so I think that it's it's not something that I've been, um, you know, I I got it mostly to bump to 720 and to test it, but I. I don't leave it on. Um, I turned it on when I needed it, and so I, it's now probably going to go back here as, a, as a um, in my my little graveyard of of cool things that that existed at one point in time. Um, next question. Next question coming in from David Brady in New York, New York. David asked, "I have a project coming up at the Sunday Place, and will need to install multiple projectors for a video mapping project. What would be the most cost effective way?" To cable things up where each projector is at a discrete surface. I mean, I think the first thing you want to think about is the 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 run. Like, how long is the run, um, and 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 where do you need to get to? You know, and and then also you need to think about what the resolution is. So at 1080p, I think that you know you could do things like NDI um, to get to those things. That would be simple networking um, to to make that work. But I think. As you go into longer runs, and if you want to have the opportunity to go to higher resolutions, you probably want to be thinking about uh, fiber and then fiber to HDMI converters um, to make sure that you have that. And, and again, if it's in the low hundreds of feet, you can do a lot of things with uh, copper. If, if those projectors are HDMI, at some point you'll need to convert from SDI or from fiber back to HDMI to get there. HDMI does not run well. Um, you can get fiber versions of the HDMI. Here's the problem with the fiber. HDMIs are really expensive. Um, and so you get these active fiber that only go one way. Um, they are, if they get pinched or broken or whatever, you now have a $300, you know, something you can, I guess, tie the, tie the door open with. Um, and, uh, but if you get, if you use something that is like SDI, or fiber, a lot of that is a lot less expensive than the than the long HDMI runs, um, the this the, the dedicated HDMI cables, and then it's still still less expensive to run SDI and then convert it back to HDMI than it is to run those long HDMI cables. Um, so so I would think hard about about what, you know what how long those runs are. If the runs aren't very long, um, then you have lots of you know lots of options. But but I'm going to guess that. That those are there coming back to it i think that it's just a matter of this gets into what software you're using so for instance if you're using something like a uh, if you're able to break something out into an sdi card um then you know you may you may have some options there again this this is i don't know i, I i'll be honest I'm, I'm not sure how to do this in a super cost effective way um you know but but you can do things like an sdi card and then if you have something like um resolume from arena arena from uh you can you know map everything to those individual surfaces. You can also do something with QLab. We'll we'll do things like that as well. Um, so I think QLab and, and Resolume are are two things that I would probably look at pretty quickly to map things against um, many many screens. So I, I'm very very curious as to uh, as to what you come up with. <laughs> Again, a quick reminder that you can ask questions in the first hour and the second hour. Uh, let's go ahead and the jump jump into the next question. Ian Alford from London asks, what is the cheapest external PCIe box for a Blackmagic I.O. card on an M1 Mac Mini? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, there's a nice uh, one-rack unit one that will also hold your Mac M1 in it, and uh, you can rack mount it. Um, and I believe there's two versions of it, and 
uh, Alex, you bought the wrong one the first time around, and I wanted to make sure that yeah. we knew which was the right one. You're looking for the full-size card. So Sonnet makes the SE1 and the SEL, and it is the SE1 that you want. Um, it is going to be the full-size one. They look identical. They are the same price, and, the, and all it swaps is 1 and L. Whoever thought that that was a good idea to, to do all of those things should have a talking to. <laughs> so so about, about like a little introduction to not, send, or, or maybe this was a whole plan to get everyone to buy two boxes, but the SEL um, is uh, does not fit the, the Black Magic cards. The SE1 does. Uh, they're both about $350 um, and they um, are a Thunderbolt. Uh, so um, I think those are the cheapest ones to get the PCIe box from the IO. And that's what, um, that's what a lot of us use to, to get those out. Next question. Next question coming in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Comment on the Poly Studio X52. It's just released 20 megapixel 4K Ultra HD 95 degree front of something uh, camera. And there's a link to it. Uh, for, yeah, field of view is what that is. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. FOB. So, ahead, yeah, we, we, we did a lot of covering on that earlier with the other question. But the, the reality is exactly what Alex said is that it's not as much of the camera and the microphones now as it is the fact of the room that it's getting put into. And uh, like I said, at Infocom, there was a lot of meeting rooms that uh, we got to see the, the future of the meeting room uh, from, th this is probably the only one that I really got uh, a good video on. This is Logitech's little video cube cubicle thing. So you can walk in and uh, all the lights light up. And, and it's once you close that door, it is just dead silent as you work uh, from there. So I, I, I think that it's all gonna be about uh, making these rooms that are gonna be big enough for uh, a group and yet not too big to to make noise. And of course, not too small because I, have, I did see a couple there where I was like, there's no way I'm gonna sit in that room for an hour uh, shoulder to shoulder with somebody else because it's just way too uh, small and annoying for that, but it's gonna sound great. So you give and take back there. Yeah, I thought of, spent a lot of thought about it. I really think that the comfortable size is about eight feet by twelve feet by about eight feet high. Like that is the, um, you know, that's the that's the size that people should really be thinking about in a way that doesn't feel doesn't create you know triggers for people who are claustrophobic. Like my mother would never never get into that <laughs> into that. She wouldn't even walk in, let alone. Um, and uh, uh, but the other thing is, is that that size gives you t a place to work. It gives you a place to, um, you know, interact with folks. It'll look great. Um, but I think that some companies are going to start thinking ahead a little bit. Uh, I actually think that the conference room, when companies start to react, is going to uh, go away. Like, we're not going to use it nearly as much as we used to. Uh, you know, I think that as we have more and more people that are off-site, it's much more getting people onto a playing field that everyone can be on is giving everybody the ability to do the frame that we're having here. If you think about how the conversation would go with this many people the, in this panel, in this panel, we have uh, 10 or 12 people that are in this, in this panel right now. Think about a conference room for 10 or 12. It's not nearly as clear <laughs> and as good as what we have here. Now, a lot of people don't have that because they, uh, a lot of people don't have that because they're, they're, uh, 
they have bad video cameras and bad audio and bad all. But what we're representing is what it could look like if companies actually invested in people looking good and sounding good when they're in meetings or individuals you know, making that investment. And so the thing is, is that I think that um, as that happens, this is a much clearer vision of, you know, this is a much, I can see everybody, you know, um, in a way that I can really see their faces. I'm not looking down over here. I'm not looking up over here. We're not trying to figure out all the little bits and pieces that we have to work with. And I think that, I mean, if you've actually, for people who have actually worked in these large companies, I've spent a lot of time desk, desk surfing and I've been a gray badge and a yellow badge and a red badge and a blue badge and a, sometimes all in the same week. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I go through those, it's a disaster. Like the, the, the amount of stress that the conference rooms create inside of the company is so high because you have to start on time, you got 25 minutes and you got to be out of there before the next set of people who, who will be standing at the door when you are, you know, when you're walking out, uh, when it, it, it's just very, very stressful to do those. And if people had the space, um, and we've walked to, I've walked to whole other buildings off campus or in semi-campus just to get to a conference room, <laughs> you know, like, so it's just often. And, and so it is, uh, when, if, if companies started giving people with all that extra space they have with, because the open offices are empty, if they gave their employees the space that they needed to be there, you'd be able to have a hybrid system where some employees are at home some of the time, some of the employees are there some of the time. And I would argue that a lot of employees would want to come back to the office if they had a little cubicle that was set up for them to be in, in meetings and look good and sound good and and not be distracted by everyone. You'd have a lot of people who would go, oh, I'd really like to go back to the office, you know, but that's what I think that's the direction people really need to think about in com for companies. Uh, next question. Rick Combs from Columbia, Tennessee. I've got a 10 to 12 person meeting sitting around a conference table and one person can attend the meeting only by phone. What is the best way for the person calling in to hear the other people in the meeting? We put the call on speaker using iPhone now. Uh, I can tell you how we did it in PixelCore because we had an office and we would have uh, meetings where there's five or six people. We sent everybody back to their own offices and had, if there was one person on a phone, like we would send everybody to their own offices and have them all in their in, on phones individually. Uh, we did not try to, uh, we made almost no attempt. I mean, and I, I can only remember maybe a handful of times where we had a conference window open. And even if we were in the same room, we, we got really good at everybody being on the, on the call. And we were literally muting and unmuting when each person was talking. You know, so we just, if there were five of us sitting in around in a room, we all got on the call and we all had our, you know, our headsets on and we all would just hit mute and unmute as we talked. And we got very, very good at it. Um, and that is the best that if you're asking for what is the best way is either nobody's in the conference room or everybody is on their is called in and they're doing mute and unmute. That is the best way. Everything else after that is a compromise to make for convenience for the folks that are in the room, you know, and, and, um, but, but if you want to do it, well, uh, we did that for years and it, and, you know, sounded a lot better. <laughs> Next question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. Gordon wants to know for wireless mics, is it okay to use rechargeable batteries in a production or should you stick with new batteries? Good, Mitchell. I, uh, you can use high quality rechargeables. Make sure you know they're fully charged. Um, anytime you start a production, whether you're using rechargeable or new batteries, Always make sure they're new batteries because you never know at what point they might fail on you in the middle of your production. Yeah, um, I know it's controversial. Uh, when we do testing, uh, a lot of times we're using rechargeable batteries, obviously, because we're, we want to keep those going and everything else. 
I will admit that when I'm doing production that matters, when I'm in, I'm getting paid for this to work, I, I buy high, high, uh, high output batteries and I, and I, I'm only going to use them once. And I often replace them when they're less than half done. Uh, I keep those batteries and we just use them for testing afterwards. So there's a box of batteries that we just use until they die um, later. But in the actual production, usually uh, we will use, um, you know, high performance batteries. We will replace them oftentimes twice or once or twice a day um, to make sure that that's the one thing we don't want to think about. <laughs> so, so that, like that's the, you know, and, and, um, and so we, uh, so that's, I, I, we're very aggressive about that because it's just, trying to explain to a client why the batteries uh, died. Uh, not, not, a good, not a good conversation. So, so usually at every major break, we swap the batteries out um, and, uh, and put them in a box. And then we still use them. We use them until they're, until they're expired. Um, but, but dur- and that's only during the event. You know, during an event, we'll keep on swapping those batteries. Um, next question. Here's Nina Osterkamp from Germany asks, how does Zoom cuts make meetings, workshops, and small productions easier for non-technical people. And could you share the same or some cool cuts, a Zoom cool, some cool Zoom cuts that were built in uh, after hours this week? I don't know what was built. I, I I didn't see a lot of Zoom cuts built in after hours uh, yet this week. Um, but but I uh, it is um, I, I'm pretty excited about the Zoom cuts in general. So for those of you listening, don't know what we're talking about. Uh, Zoom Cuts is an app from that's built and it's on the Liminal Technology site. And what it allows you to do is automate, you know, it's it's basically another Zoom client. So you wouldn't op- open your normal Zoom client, you would open up Zoom Cuts. And what it what it has done is built all the, it has all the hooks that you would need to now use shortcuts, Apple's shortcuts, and embed them in with Zoom Cuts. And so you have not all the tools you'd have with Zoom OSC, but you have a lot of tools that are available to you at Zoom OC. So you could send, you can have, for instance, um, and we we talked a little bit about this, I guess I what may be referred to as in uh, last Sunday, Andy Carluccio jumped on with me and we just kind of went through and started playing with some of those. But what the access that you get now is, is for a lot of people that thought that OSC was a little too heavy, like, oh, I got, it's a little too hard to figure out how to do the OSC. Zoom cuts is going to, going to give you all of the things you probably thought you needed um, then. And the other thing is, is that it's now integrating your shortcuts that you can use for the rest of your um, system. It, it can integrate those uh, into uh, Zoom. So you could be talking to, for instance, uh, uh, MixEffect Pro uh, and tell it to do something and then tell Zoom to do something all at the same time through a set of shortcuts. And so, so I think that there's a lot of possibilities of how we do that. Now, I'm using it for some of the most simple things. Um, I have a Zoom cut, or I have a, um, I have a Zoom cut that enters after hours. Like I just hit, I just, I can um, either say something or I can just touch it, and it'll just open up after hours and lock me in. Uh, same with office hours. I'm not using it today um, for a variety of technical reasons on my end because I was changing a bunch of stuff. But the, um, but I normally jump into office hours and after hours now with a with a zoom cut in, in through zoom cut, um, to make that work. The other thing that I have is the ability. I do have a software. I now have a shortcut that I can mute and unmute, um, that I do. I have a hardware version of that, but it's nice to have a software version of for, for whatever reason I need it. Um, and then uh, I know th- this is the gets into the integration. Um, I have it set up so that if I say, I want to join after hours, 
it will turn on all my studio lights, you know, so it'll make sure that all my lights are like, I can just come in and say it. And, and like, for instance, I have a shortcut right now that uh, does this, right? So you can, so those are all my lights there. And then I can turn all my studio lights back on. Um, and those are, that's a shortcut. And I can activate that shortcut along with my uh, Zoom. <laughs> so I can say join office hours. If, if my lights aren't already on, they will come on as I, as I, um, as it goes through that process. So uh, that's the kind of integration that I'm starting to work on, you know, to, to get that. And I have to admit that before um, Zoom cuts, I really didn't spend much time on shortcuts. Like I was like, oh, it's cute, cute. You know, I'd been using Automator for a long time and Apple scripts for longer than that. And, um, and I was like, okay, sh shortcuts are, are fine. You know, I didn't really spend much time on it. They're really cool. <laughs> so, so the uh, you know, shortcuts on on the, on on Apple's uh, platform are um, I'm now that I'm digging into them, they're remarkably easy to create and really really fun to to build stuff with. So, uh, I'm I'm afraid that it's, I'm spending too much time fiddling now with with like oh I can do this little thing and then I can have a button on it. And what I'm one of the things I'm doing is you can get these kind of buttons uh, on your phone that are there. And uh, what I'm looking at is, you know, having a old phone kind of dedicated to that. So I have a couple buttons that, that I can just sit down and tap as well as using, I have found that Siri has been hit and miss with the, the shortcuts. It, I think it's because I have so many Apple devices in one place that, that it, Siri seems to get confused. I haven't figured that out yet, but yeah, go ahead, Robert. I think the other thing about um, Zoom cuts is that once you've defined a certain amount of shortcuts, you can share it very easily with the second person. And that makes really unifying the way people who are attending a meeting very simple to use because they don't have to be technical. They don't have to go into the config. They just get a package that they set up and run. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a lot of um, there's going to be a lot of remote things that we can do with Zoom cuts um, as we as we go as we move forward. And you're you're 100 right that as we get even more complex ones that really do all the things we want it to do, uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of um, the ability to do a lot of really interesting, um, much more complex things. And I think that because of what Adam works on in general, the production studio, and he works on shortcuts. I think that there's going to be a really interesting integration between um, Zoom's production studio developments and shortcuts. Um, I think that's there's. I think we're just seeing the very beginning of the development that um, that Adam Tao is is uh, undertaking at, at Zoom. So, and we had him on. If you're wondering what we talked about here, uh, if you didn't see the the episode, we had Andy and Adam on um, about a week, you know, a week ago, uh, discussing. Uh, zoom cuts. I would highly recommend looking at that video. Next question. Next one in from Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. Craig asks, I recently noticed YouTube's transcript feature. It includes all of the ums and ahs. Why wouldn't they just leave those out? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Because YouTube cannot assume anything that they might, uh, that person might be actually talking in a different language. And how do you determine that from an um and an ah? It's, there's no AI ability inside of transcripts besides the fact of actually doing the transcript itself. W could it happen in the future? Yeah, I think with a lot of these uh, AI features that are coming out with editing options and other uh, other. To, uh, other features like that, YouTube's probably going to look into that and try and figure out a way to probably and most likely uh, improve their internal editor so you can uh, actually take all that stuff out. But uh, as for the general uh, transcript itself, it does not want to touch with what it, it reads. It wants you to take care 
of any corrections that need to be done. And that means taking out the ums and the ahs. Yeah, it, you can um, um, see, it's not going to take that out. You're going to see that in the transcript as I, as I say it. You can take things and there are places where you can do, you, you can probably take it out and condition it itself. These are SRT files. You can download them from YouTube. You could process it and say, replace every um with a space, <laughs> you know, like, and, and just go and then push it back in and it would cl clear it out if that's what you want to do. But I think that it's hard to know. Sometimes people want to use those words. And I think YouTube trying to figure out what you want to use and what you don't want to use is a pretty dangerous place for them to go um, in that process. And so I don't, I think that that's probably one of the reasons we don't, we don't necessarily see them trying to make those decisions. It's hard enough in most people's relatively poor video quality or audio quality. Uh, it's probably hard enough for YouTube just to get the words out in time, you know, and, and, and put them up there, let alone start making subjective decisions on what should be included and what shouldn't be included. Uh, so I think that that's, I think that's one of the, the big challenges that, um, that, that YouTube has in that area. And so, I, and that we're at the very beginning of this. I mean, if you look at a lot of the new AI and the whisper AI, and there's like Mac whisper and whisper AI, and uh, those things are making a lot of those decisions in a very, very intelligent way. The large language models are just nailing transcription um, in a way that is, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing um, to, to see how accurate uh, they're becoming and how quickly they're becoming. I'm testing a bunch of stuff in that area. And, you know, we're going to get to a point where, um, I mean, when we look at the quality of it, uh, I think that we're going to get to a point where you have a city council meeting and uh, it is, you know, it fin the city council meeting is finished. It's then converted to 60 languages and, um, and then even re-audioized into all those languages. Um, and this is like a small, what I'm talking about, it's something that has no budget, that has no real reason to do that, but they'll be able to do it because it's, of, you know, this is not going to be a, a thing that has a constrained supply anymore. And so what we're going to see is, is anything like that. So you have a, a city council meeting and 20 minutes after the, um, uh, what, what we did, you're going to see all the transcript. you'll have, you'll have, you'll have uh, subtitles in 60 languages. You may have voices in 60 languages. Um, you'll have uh, summaries in 60 languages. <laughs> you'll have all of those things and all of that will happen like that, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the access to uh, the access that people will have to knowledge is going to be dramatically different because uh, it's not all going to be siloed. And I think that, it's going to be a really interesting process. The other side of that, of course, is that um, that we have a, a a real challenge with what I would say for from a con as content creators, as we are content creators, uh, we need to understand that we're about our the content is about to go into hyperinflation, which means that the value of each piece of content is going to start dropping dramatically because there's just so much content out there. It's just going to be a competition for time like how much time can someone spend listening to something or looking at something um you know suddenly everything that's being done is going to be available you know and and so it's you know in 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 audio and video and and, and everything else and so that's going to be you know as content creators we really have to be constantly thinking about uh where we you know where we sit in that food chain and and i think that we have to um be very careful of of not assuming that everything's going to be the same for for forever so it's just something that a lot of us think about this a lot <laughs> you know, as far as as far as uh, what that what that actually looks like. 
Um, let's go ahead to the next question. And we have probably another room for about one or two more questions if you have them uh, for the first hour. Go ahead. Uh, let's go to the next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California has a question. Why can't vMix replace an ATEM for most use cases or can it? Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. I think it can. Uh, the only problem is trying to get a vMix into a box like this, this size. I could literally uh, set this up at my home and then uh, take this out and put it in my bag, uh, take it out to the uh, remote se uh, session and uh, and use this like this without a computer. Just hit the buttons, like I said, all pre-configured and uh, go from there. I have my vMix, uh, portable vMix uh, box. It's also a portable Wirecast box, which that's an advantage, switching from one piece of software to another. Uh, but it's an Intel Nook, Skull Canyon. And if I want to bring in HDMI, I either have to get uh, I have to get the USB dongles for the HDMI, or I use something like my Sonnet box with a uh, with a card in it that can do multiple uh, HDMI's in. I also use NDI for that, so that's an advantage for having the the uh, vMix box over the ATEM Mini. So as you can see, we have we, it's a basically a give and take. If you want, uh, if you want ease of use and uh, and low low weight, then an ATEM Mini is perfect. But if you need to have more functionality, then uh, getting yourself a smaller box and the newer Skull Canyons have the ability to uh, insert a PCIe video graphics card for the GPU side of things. Yeah, I think that it, it comes down to expense. You know, as as Jeffrey I think was kind of alluding to there is that. You can replace vMix, but to get a PC that will do, let's say, eight channels with a super source and everything else, there's a PC there that's going to cost more than the ATEM um, to get that done. And so I think that that's the, that's the challenge that you have is to, is to do it stably and to have what you need for that. You're going you're gonna to end up spending more. And to be honest, it's going to be less stable. <laughs> so, so you're going to pay... Um, you know, you're going to pay more money for something that's probably less stable than the ATEM is to get those things done. So um, there's definitely a place for vMix. Um, a lot of people use it in the cloud. A lot of people use it for a one-person production pipeline. Um, but I think that the challenge really is, is that that you um, are are trading oftentimes. I mean, I was using vMix for, for an event recently and got to see, you know, where things start to get caught up in you know slow frames um you know so what we call slow frames which is that it's not doing the full frame rate when it's making some kind of transition um you know and a lot of the idiosyncrasies that come with the, that software is is um with with any software um you you have some of those challenges and you just really need to make sure that you have a pc that has enough headroom to make that actually work and that starts to become a lot more expensive than or at least a little bit more expensive than something i can throw in a backpack you know the this um ex we're taking an extreme to a soccer game tomorrow and it's just like a little piece of the box. <laughs> like we're just going to do this. I don't have to figure out how to have a PC or figure out how to tie it into a laptop or figure out how to do any of those other things. I just feed all the cameras into it and start cutting. Um, and so I think that to, to, to exactly what Jeffrey was talking about there, um, I think that we, you know, I think that oftentimes the ATEM makes more sense. What I do think is going to be interesting is to see whether Blackmagic decides to go at vmix at some point you know a lot of us believe that that the software that blackmagic has created and the functionality that it's created on its hardware could easily be ported to the web you know or ported to a pc um, to go in or a mac or both to do the video editing there's so much available that that you know blackmagic could go after the software market as well 
Um, they've been resistant to that, I think, because partially because they make hardware. <laughs> so, so they, they, you know, but, but I think that that is uh, um, something that we may see in the not too distant future, or a lot of us hope we see in the not too distant future. All right, we are switching over to our second hour, and this is our first hour, uh, first hour, second hour, but the first time we're really focusing on accessibility. And we're going to have a couple discussions here about accessibility. Um, Eileen McCartan is going to be talking about uh, a little bit later is going to be on um, and talking a little bit about etiquette and how we how we work with um, the, the the accessibility market. Um, but first, we're going to have Sherry Turpin on and Sherry Turpin is the uh, CEO of uh, ZP Better Together. It's a leading provider of communication solutions, including video relay technology and interpretation services um, for the deaf and hard of hearing individuals. Um, and so, Sherry, it's good. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's when we first have our first guests on, we always try to make sure that, that the connection is working there. Yeah. Can you um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, ZP Better Together? Sure. Well, thank you. First, I want to say thank you for having this conversation. It's an important conversation and I'm so proud to be here. Uh, ZP Better Together is the... Um, it's a single source provider for the deaf and hard of hearing. We're United States based. Um, if they need communication access at work, at home, or on the go, we are a provider of choice. And and um, now you're uh, you're not the founder, but you're the CEO. Is that right? You became the CEO of ZP together. Yes, I became the uh, CEO in 2015. And what brought you to ZP? So my background is technology, so it made a lot of sense. Um, I had never met deaf in 2015, so this to say that this journey has been the most rewarding journey of my career would be an understatement. Uh, the technology is just grossly behind. And right. so I came here to try and really make a stand for and with this community to have the same equal access that you and I and every other hearing person take for granted every day to live our lives. And, and so and that's what's interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So what are the issues? What are the issues that are happening right now that affect uh, the deaf community? So there's a laundry list, but the probably two or three that keep me up every night are you and I have, I've had the same phone number for 25 years. And I use it for my personal use, for my business use. When I go to a bank, anytime I need to fill out an application, I have one phone number. I use that phone number for all communication. The deaf, unfortunately, have to have two phone numbers. Uh, one for texting, which is through a cell phone carrier. And the second number is for vid the video relay service uh, via video technology for them to see the interpreter and speak in their natural language, American Sign Language. It's a three-leg call. And the interpreter then speaks audio to the, the person in which the deaf are wanting to communicate with. So it's the 21st century. Who really has to navigate two phone numbers? It's really unreal to me. And it's really hard for them whenever they try to buy a house or fill out an application with a bank. Uh, some bank institutions won't even work with them because they have two phone numbers and they just lack of education for them to understand that that is their environment and that they do need to accept both types of phone numbers. So we really want to get them to the 21st century with one phone number, no matter how they need to use it, equal to us. The really, really big one is uh, emergency 911. And the best way to describe it is when they're in their home and they have an emergency situation and they call 911, we are, if you, if you are a provider for the deaf, you also service their 911. We know where they are. But if they leave their home and they're on their mobile, we do not, we cannot locate them. Unlike you and I, if we're see an accident 
or we're in an accident, uh, we dial 911 and it geolocates us immediately for 911 dispatch. And it is, it's really, really bad. And they can't help um, their fellow friends if they see an accident and they are unable to be located. So they have to be coherent to describe where they are or hope that someone can be near them to describe where they are. And and this has kind of led to you uh, working on the Stand with the Deaf Community campaign. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I started back in 2015 and I would sit with this amazing deaf executive team that really does guide me. And we would do a contrast and comparison. I have this. Do you have this? I have this. Do you have this? And the list just continued to be created. It was filed in the FCC docket in 2011, a list of inequities. And that list just continues to grow. So all I did two years ago was dust it off, highlight it, and went on an advocacy campaign with different advocacy groups, um, my executive team, the deaf community, and anybody that will join us, stand with us, and we're calling it stand for or stand with the deaf community to solve these inequities, which we have to solve through the TRS VRS program through the Federal Communications Commission. And and so there's a petition out. Um, where do people find this petition? So you can find it on, um, I'm going to mess it up, Stand With the Deaf Community. It's uh, nationbuilders.com. It's a, like a legit petition site. Uh, we have it, I think, posted somewhere here for everyone to find. Um, we have over, as of this morning, 7,500, which I will say are mainly hearing. The hearing community was completely unaware that this was happening. The deaf community, unfortunately, has lived with it since this program inception, which is a little over 20 years. The ADA 33 years ago made a commitment to bring equal access to this community, and they're doing just the bare minimum. So we've created this petition for uh, anyone who is willing to help us fight these inequities. It takes no more than five seconds to sign the petition, and we will be submitting the petition next week to the FCC to show everyone in the FCC, that we are all standing together, that we should have equal access for all. And is there other things? I mean, we talked about the two phone numbers. Are there other inequities that you're trying to solve specifically with this, uh, with what, with the petition? Yeah, there's a whole list of them. Uh, Zoom, this this conference unit here, any um, conferencing, which the FCC did vote in, I think it was last week, to do a public, um, it's called an NPRM, a public notice, to discuss how all conferencing units could be more integrated. So it's Zoom, it's WebEx, it's Teams, it's all of them. And how would they be integrated? What do you, what do you mean by that? The provider, like myself, would have right. to have full accessibility so we can pin automatically pen the interpreter. You see the interpreters here where the interpreter is next to me, which you can see here. We've done that on the front end with your team before we joined. So it's right. just a little kludgy and we are looking for it to be a seamless integration. And we're happy, all providers, there's four of us total, are very happy to work with all of the different platforms to make it a smooth integration for the deaf when they actually join for conference calls, for um, podcasts like this, for interviews. As we know, COVID kind of changed the conferencing platform platform environment. So we just need it to be very accessible. Yeah. And and I can say that we worked on the back end. Uh, this is thousands of dollars of hardware and a lot of work for us to set up making this work um, yes. seamlessly or relatively seamlessly. Um, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a trivial problem for people right now. 
No, and your team did a phenomenal job. But to your point, it took a lot of work on the front end to get this to happen today. It's beautiful, yeah. by the way. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, now, do you think that this is going to work? Do you think that the, the petition is actually going to push through with the FCC? Do you, do, is the, do, you, do you think that there's the right mix in the FCC? That's always the question, right? Yes. Is like, it's, it's all like, who's there? And, and But what do you think are the chances? So I've been very fortunate. I'm, uh, we're in what was called a rate card. It's every four years. Um, this last rate card, which was in 2017, really got extended due to COVID. I've been very fortunate to have phenomenal relationships with all of the commissioners and the chairman and now the first chairwoman, Rosen Warsaw. I'm here in D.C. I'm in my hotel room. Uh, the decision will be made by the end of this month. And I was with all of them just last week and will be with them next week. Everybody wants to help the deaf. Um, when you meet them, they're a beautiful, beautiful community living their life fully, and they just should navigate it equally as us. Uh, they're extremely bright, extremely um, creative. They can contribute to the world and to society if we would just give them the technology at the same accessibility that you and I have. And I am very optimistic for the first time in the history of this program, that this program will be reorganized and restructured, that will fully invest and not only catch up to technology, but stay caught up for years to come. That's great. And you did a film, didn't you? I mean, you had a film recently yes. that you produced. Where, where can people find yes. that? So uh, the film is on our website and it's also at our petition. So if you want to watch it, it's eight minutes. And I'm honored to have put together and everyone told me it was just a really clear documentary and it's with some deaf executives and deaf members. And I'm just a guest in their story. Um, but it is on our petition site. I would encourage everyone to watch it. It really does describe the inequities and it's, um, it's heart wrenching to watch. Um, but you will see everything we just talked about in the documentary and it was hosted on CBS news, um, digital site as well. As we kind of finish up, what is the most, what is one of the most important things that the audience needs to know about, about this program? So as I mentioned earlier, I had never met deaf. Um, I had no idea what they were dealing with. And it is because I come from a technology background. It is um, really disgusting to me that anything, anyone has allowed this to happen for the period in which that it has happened. So the moment I explain to anyone what is happening and they watch the film or they just listen to us, um, there's been like a tsunami of support from the hearing. It's a lack of education and awareness. And once you know, you can't not support and get to work. And I would encourage all of you, we could use all of your support. We could use a signature of a petition. Uh, we are in the 11th hour of really for the first time doing something really great for a community that is so deserving. So I just plead with you that if we have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. But the petition site and the documentary really does explain it probably more than I could ever explain it. And again, the petition takes maybe five seconds. So your name and an email address, it's super simple, uh, really will make a difference, most likely in a hearing next week uh, on the Hill. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we're Thank really you. excited about it. And, and we're really excited about this summer. You know, we're really working on, you know, I've worked at a lot of accessibility, uh, you know, programs, you know, to make these, make different programs uh, possible. But it, it, it is to, you, what, to what you're saying, it's always a heavy lift. You know, yeah. if we want to even add captions, it is this huge pipeline that we have to build that is not trivial for people to do at a high level, at a high quality level. 
And um, so I, I definitely can see where you're coming from there. And I think that uh, we're hoping that we're not only talking about accessibility over the next seven weeks, but we're going to be uh, experimenting with it. You know, so you're going to see more and more, like even the the video that we're doing right now that you see in the program, this is step, this is a uh, hello world for us. This is the very beginning. Uh, we're going to look at how we keep on dressing that up. How do we make it, you know, how do we, how do we keep on moving that forward and then show other people how we're doing it. So that, to make sure that they understand that it's possible. And these are the, I think what a lot of people are missing is what are the steps, you yes. know, what are the steps to get from here to there? Um, and so we're going to try to figure out what those steps are, taking some of the stuff we already know how to do, but then other, you know, learning how to do these. Um, you know, one thing that that we suddenly realized as we started to talk is we've done a lot of ASL in the past. What we haven't done is having people using ASL in the program and then using and then having um, someone interpret that, you know, an interpreter there. And so we realized that's a new thing for us to, yeah. to really fully incorporate um, you know, um, uh, deaf into the, into the actual conversation. So, so I think that that's going to be really interesting. Well, I can't thank you enough. It takes people like you who will, and Tim, I know, I know Tim that will just pause and ask questions. There are no dumb questions. I tell everyone that, uh, the community as a whole in the United States is very small compared to everyone else. And so it just takes us really fast paced hearing world to slow down. We're here to help ZDRS and purple are here to help here to educate, um, here to offer interpreters, here to adjust as you navigate through this over the next seven weeks. And you can never ask us enough questions. It is truly, uh, in today's world, the right thing to do. And I'm just honored that you're, that you're doing it. I couldn't be more happy to partner with you. Well, and, and we're, we're hoping that you're going to come back a little bit later this summer and give us an update. Is that, is that possible? I put you on the spot yes. here. I okay, would okay. love to come back and give you a very positive update. I might be able to do that in just a couple of weeks. So okay, great. So we'll if if uh, if you have something, let us know, and we'll we'll get you back on. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thanks so much. All right, see you later. Um, and now we are going to jump to the second part of our second hour. <laughs> so we're we're uh, uh, going to the to the next step here, and and we're really excited to have uh, Eileen McCartan on. Um, and Eileen's from the Northern Virginia Resource Center for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing Persons. And um, and uh, Eileen, welcome to the show. Can you hear me? Okay. We can't hear you yet. Okay, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. Um, so I'm Eileen McCartan. I'm from the Northern Virginia Resource Center for Deaf and Hard of Hearing outside Washington, D.C. And I have a hearing loss. I was born hearing but lost my hearing in childhood. So now I have two cochlear implants that I use to communicate. Also, I know American Sign Language as well. So I'm using the interpreter. And um, I just wanted to talk about some of the things that are maybe challenging for people who are hard of hearing or deaf to access technology. For example, um, we, in the beginning of COVID, worked a little bit with Zoom to allow the captioning to be a free option for people. Right. I'm seeing here, like you don't have captioning, and, and I think it's a, it's a journey because um, people are saying that they want the captions on because it burns in to the Zoom. And they, as we know, automatic captioning is not accurate always. And it does um, detract from the message if you're reading garble, which we call craptions. 
and hard of hearing people, but hearing people as well. They don't want to see that. They don't want to see that. Well, and, and to be clear, uh, what you're seeing when you're here, there's captions, I believe, on the YouTube output that a lot of people are watching. Um, we have a production version here, which to your point, we have never thought that we need captions inside of this meeting because it hasn't been, uh, because this isn't what people see. Like what, what you're looking at here is not the outward pointing um, uh, uh, event. Uh, but now that you've brought that up on on these Saturdays, captions will be, we'll, we'll, we'll get that working for the next week. So thank you for pointing that out. Right. So, so that now is an issue because, um, for me, I use captions and I have a backup because I have a automatic speech app on my phone. There are a couple of, app, of them out there that are pretty good that are being, um, used as a, as sort of a backup to what's happening here. Right. And it, it does give me, because I am someone who's late deaf and, and unlike uh, there's people who are born deaf who use American Sign Language, there's a small, Proportion of the people who have hearing loss in the United States, the proportion of people who are hard of hearing or uh, have some age-related hearing loss is pretty big, and that's almost an un—it's um, like an invisible disability, if you will. And that—and those are the people who, for whatever reason, they just want to be able to enable the captions for themselves. They don't want to tell anybody that they need them, but it does function as sort of a, you know, um, backup. They can, if you have a face and you have the captions and you have the audio, you have a good chance of putting it all together into a meaningful message. However, I'm noticing like on this, and I don't know if it's going to happen in the final um, complete version, but people who are speaking, their lips are out of sync with what they're saying. So that puts a, um, a kind of a burden on the hard of hearing person to try to um, use lip reading as their. Yeah. And we, uh, the output, one of the challenges for Zoom is that, and, and because of the pipelines is that everything is off, often a little out of sync. The final version generally is in sync, um, is, you know, as much as, as these kind of online things are. Uh, but to your point, they often look out of sync in this, in this room that we're in. Um, that is distinct from if we if we sync our audio here because a lot of us have some pretty big video pipelines we're not just coming in with our webcam if we sync it here it will increase the latency of the overall event so we try not to sync them into this zone and to your point we haven't been as sensitive to that in the past so it's something for us to think about yeah and i think um i think that zoom does allow you to just allow the participant to see captions and the the product that in that you as a host get at the end of it you you can either accept or not accept those captions in fact in my experience is that they do not burn in but again that's a technical thing that i don't really know that much about but the ability, the ability for people like who are maybe from you know other countries who are joining this event they probably would also benefit just from that ability to have auto captions, even though they know they're not going to be perfect. Um, so, um, but yes. well, that's what that's something well, about technology and the ability and, to put the interpreter right next to the speaker as an option is another advancement. For example, you know, in the past, you you either have to pick the interpreter and pin the interpreter, 
and then you couldn't see the speaker. But this setup here is where the speaker is in a box and the interpreter is in a box and you can choose that option. That is great. That's wonderful. So I, I can look at the interpreter and I don't have to kind of find her on the um, the Zoom screen. And that's that's helpful. So every every it feels like every few months things are getting better. Like captioning, yeah. captioning in Zoom, you can actually drag the Zoom away, uh, put it wherever you want. I really so, like the captioning in Zoom better than most other ones because a lot of them are pinned to the bottom or pinned to the top or pinned somewhere else. And being able to just put it where you need it to be has been super useful. Um, and and you know the and and there are ways, of course, in Zoom to have a person caption these as well so that we we've done a lot of events where we bring in um, we can attach a um, using icap and you know eeg products and and so on and so forth attach a person directly to the um, zoom um, event and have them um, or clips the clip systems um, we can we can actually have them push straight into zoom so it's there's a couple different options there as well you we can have, have them a, push straight into zoom but you also yeah, and you can also have a stream text on another um, device that so you can see the captions on on another monitor, all in one place. Yep. With it. so those are wonderful improvements and make um, it, it it possible to save the transcript and you know look at things um, later and review that. And I've also heard that the transcripts and the ability to do that is very helpful for people who have. Um, you know, ADD, they can't maintain focus that long, but they can go back and look at the, the, the transcript or who have autism and have too many sensory issues and they need to switch over to something that's better for them at the moment. Um, well, and, and I think that what's interesting there is also that, uh, you know, captions or subtitles were something that were mostly an accessibility feature. But nowadays, uh, I, I know that my family leaves subtitles on 80% of the time. And that has to do with what's interesting is that has to do with the the Hollywood has changed the way it mixes films, and a lot of people can't hear the dialogue anymore. So they so everyone's turning the turning the the uh, the captions or the or the subtitles on um, mm -hmm. in a way that they didn't in the past. And so it's a it's a it's a really interesting um, process there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple comments from um, um, Michael Michael Coffer. Did yeah, you have I, something to add there, Hi, Michael? Oh yeah, uh, about the question or sorry, I sorry, I, I was it was it was hard to know if there was something a little bit. In in general, just just uh, it, it, um, a lot of folks, you know, we we have a thing on the back end, so we just kind of if if, if you have a general, uh, is there anything you want to share before we get to the general questions? Oh, no, go ahead with the questions. All good. Yeah, I just had a comment on some of those questions for sure. But thank you for um, you, uh, ZP to providing the interpreters for this event. I truly appreciate it. That's really great. <laughs> like, I'm really excited about it. I've, I've often thought that we should, um, in production, we should teach people ASL. Uh, in fact, we might try to drag somebody here to help us do that. Because looking across the, being able to look across a production and do what we tell someone something without comms would be, very useful for us. So, so we, so we've, we've thought about it as a language that would be useful to, to, for production people to know uh, in general. Uh, Brenda, did you have anything else to add before we jump into the questions? Yeah, yes, this is Brendan. Um, I do thank you for um, having this uh, event. I did want to throw in a comment about the 
um, Eileen was talking about the Zoom captions and all of that. I think it has been wonderful to have. Um, I worked for or worked at Meta um, and that was during the time of COVID and I really had no access. I had no access to anything. So kind of screamed for that and worked on improvements. And it was really, really hard for people who didn't understand out there. They don't understand that we have to do it on our own. We have to turn on a lot of connections and do things on my own. And it's, it's frustrating and it's hard. So um, people can understand how annoying or frustrating that is and getting the bigger picture on how it truly is important for everyone. The, the features are important for everyone. So making those improvements for everyone, not just me, um, every deaf person, you know, you have hard of hearing people, people in your family, children, even people with auditory issues. So it's not only deaf people. Um, we think, you know, oh, you can hear it's fine. It's great. We don't need that. But I think the captions are great for everyone. So thank you for that. And just, yeah, go ahead and move on to questions. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our first question. And the first one comes in from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. TJ asks, do folks with hearing impairment prefer ASL or closed captioning for an event or show? Go ahead, Eileen. Okay, so um, first thing, a lot of people who have um, hearing loss do not like the term hearing impairment. They prefer um, deaf or hard of hearing. Um, so as to the question about ASL or closed captioning for an event, it really depends on the person. Like if you are late deaf and don't know American Sign Language, then clearly you would not want an ASL interpreter. And um, so it depends on the person's interest or ability to use American Sign Language. Uh, so at Kennedy Center, for example, they have many, Kennedy Center is Washington, D.C. and has a lot of open cap, uh, open caption and interpreted performance options for people that they can choose either one or the other. And sometimes there are some that have both. And the reason some people might want to choose an ASL interpreter is they want to get more of the um, emotional, um, you know, the facial expressions, the the tone of the, the play, but they can't really get that with captions if they have no hearing. But there are people who are like captions because they have some hearing and they may also use an assistive listening device that brings audio directly to their hearing device. And that helps them kind of put a whole picture together of a more pleasurable experience. So it really depends on the person who, um, what kind of ability they have or what how, kind of hearing they have. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, so um, you're exactly right. I think to add to your comments and discussion, yes, you definitely want to see the emotion and the tone of it. Um, you can't really tell the tone and the voice and captioning. Some people actually speak very monotone or they include sarcasm. So it's really good to know, oh, like when you see that in the interpreter, you see the sarcasm there or their expressions that they're having. Um, you can't see that in captioning. As I said before, you know, there's a variety of deaf people out in the world and um, the, the level of deafness is different. Some people actually, you know, sign, you know, don't have very good English proficiency. So American Sign Language would be, interpreter would be more beneficial to someone who maybe doesn't understand written English. Michael? Yeah, this is Michael. I would like to just say a few things. Uh, first of all, that question is a very common question that we hear. Um, oftentimes when a person says hearing impaired, I always ask them to look at the dictionary on what impaired um, or impairment means. 
And it truly means uh, damage, um, that you're damaged. And we don't consider ourselves damaged. We are just happen to be deaf or hard of hearing or have a hearing loss. And as an example, the virtual impaired community, sorry, visual, visually impaired community um, has actually removed the word impaired as well. So that aside, um, if we could move on, we always say deaf or hard of hearing or person with a hearing loss. Um, with the second question in terms of an ASL interpreter or captioning, um, there are two separate things. The captioning should be everywhere. It really should, no matter what, no matter if a deaf or a hearing person is there or not. Um, for example, we can't assume that every hearing person can, in fact, hear perfectly. There are some, like my father is hearing. Um, he depends on the captioning services. He can't hear certain words, so he'll look to the captioning. Now, you all also have to think about why in Europe and in other countries they have higher uh, language acquisition than Americans. And it's truly because um, in America... Uh, the things that we make and whatever, and we distribute or hand them off to another country, the other country then changes it to their languages to be captioned on there. So that should apply to both hearing and deaf in other countries. They're able to use both. With their language, they're able to pick it up quicker um, in comparison to Americans or in America, we just watch a movie and it may get lost on us because the captioning is not there for everything. Now, with the American Sign Language, it really depends on if a deaf person is there or not, right? If you want an interpreter and have that request. But oftentimes, I do like both. For this, especially, um, for example, if the interpreter signs something that maybe I'm not really sure because it depends on where the interpreter is from. Um, that interpreter can be from California that might sli sign slightly different and I might miss the word and I can, or the sign and I can look at the captioning and go, oh, that's what the interpreter um, meant. Every state has slightly different signs for different words. Um, so that obviously would help you all understand why another reason why captioning is important. And, and isn't there a distinction uh, between, uh, uh, when, when we're talking about sign, isn't there a distinction between um, uh, people who are, uh, were born deaf or people who became deaf and how they sign. Is that a, I know we've gotten into some discussions about that and there's sometimes a preference between the two. Is that, um, Michael, can you uh, talk to that a little bit? Or, or uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um. All right. I see we got a new interpreter. All right. Very good. Uh, Michael here. Yeah. I always want to make sure that I know who the interpreter is and then uh, I get myself pinned. All right. I personally was born deaf. Uh, very deaf. I've been very deaf. Uh, I have like an 87 decibyte on one side and 110. So in other words, I have never heard sound in my life. People often say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, I've actually saved a lot of money by not paying for music in my lifetime. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm not sure what the cost of music is anymore. But being born deaf, I was raised in an oral environment because back then, um, I'm not as young as y'all think I am. I'm pretty, pretty old, uh, you know, forget my age, but I, you know, learned how to grow up uh, in an oral environment, not American Sign Language. So it wasn't until I was in high school where I started to learn American Sign Language. Uh, I am a native signer, right? Uh, well, maybe not necessarily, but it depends on the person's willingness to 
adapt and accept ASL as their language, right? Um, if you look at any other spoken language, some of the, the people who grow up speaking Spanish, they're still not proficient when it comes to reading Spanish or being able to speak Spanish. You know, it's all, it's all dependent. I would say it's very similar, uh, individually based for sure. Hey, go ahead, Brendan. Awesome. Yes. Uh, Brendan here. Uh, yeah. I, Michael May grew up oral. I grew up in a mainstream setting. Um, and I think it was kind of a mix of both oral instruction and signed instruction. I was taught how to speak. I was taught to understand, you know, uh, things that were repeated every week in terms of audiology. Uh, you know, my wife is hearing. I can speak with my wife, um, but it's it's not the the same, right? Um, it, it's kind of hard to find areas of both. So I've I've been able to live in both worlds. You know, those who are willing to learn to sign with me, I'll use sign language. If they're speaking with me, they speak with me. But like I said, I grew up in a mainstream program. I'm married to a hearing woman. Um, but from a deaf school perspective, uh, I can see, you know, uh, their environment is different. And then they go home and they leave school uh, and then they go home an hour away. And uh, so there's a lot of variance in, in our community. Um, my mom supported uh, my growth and wanting to know both. And that's how I became who I am. I'm a technical engineer because of that. And um, I think there are different views, right? Uh, I think there's a lot of similarity. You see parents that do or don't support the learning. I think uh, whatever it takes to become successful and to break down any communication barrier is the goal. Go to the next question. Next question coming in from Jason Robertshaw in Sarasota, Florida. Jason wants to know, what are some affordable options for meeting an ASL request? I'm leading a two-hour professional development workshop over Zoom. Three of the participants have requested an ASL interpreter. Uh, go ahead, Eileen. Okay. Who did, who did, oh, myself. Okay. So um, sometimes there might be a bit of a discount for having someone as a remote interpreter, such as this meeting, but uh, at the cost of interpreters for on-site might be a little bit more. So you're having a Zoom meeting, it's really, um, for you have a two-hour Zoom meeting, you're going to need two interpreters. And and it does cost, but it is something that we hope that you put, build into your budget as you plan your, um, you know, year. Uh, so there are some ADA requirements for certain size businesses that must require or must provide, sorry, accommodations for those people who ask for that are reasonable and um, you you generally do have to mis, mis, provide an interpreter or interpreters for your events. But as to the cost, um, you know, um, it, it is just something we hope that you budget for. I can't really give you, uh, you don't really want to save money and have poor quality. You want to have a certified interpreter who knows what he or she um you know, the topic for sure. You want to share information ahead of time, technical jargon. So that's not really an area that you can save money, unfortunately, um, but it's worth it. Go ahead, Brendan. Brendan. 
Brendan here. Uh, great point, Eileen. Uh, you make excellent points. And then as a deaf person who uses sign language day in, day out, every day, um, I have experienced, you know, going into huge technical companies with meetings of 30, 40 hours. Imagine as a, a person, uh, I require a very highly qualified interpreter because I need to know how I sound to the audience. If I sound less than, I don't want people to look at me as being less than. So it is very important that I have the right voice, the right interpreter, somebody who matches me. That's for me, could take about six months, right? When I was hired at Meta, it took six months to build a team of somebody that understood me and I understood them because there's so much technical jargon out there. There's every interpreter, you know, is not an expert in those areas, right? So you bring them in, you got to understand, you got to, some people are afraid. I mean, my job can be overwhelming. <laughs> there's a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of jargon that people just don't understand. So uh, I love my group of interpreters. We work phenomenal together and it makes it makes it possible to understand. So again, discount interpreting is is not an option. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've had very bad experiences uh, in the state. Um, uh, the, the city of Fort Worth hired an interpreter without my input. And uh, when I got to the site and started to communicate, I looked I looked dumb and I couldn't just walk away and and leave. So, you know, I guess uh, same as any other foreign language, you want to sound like a, a, a professional, not a third grader, right? I liken it the same to me. So it is important. Get the right team, get the right people. How do you know if an interpreter is good or not? Ask the deaf participant. They know who are good. They know who is good. Yeah, oftentimes uh, in our work, we say that content is easy to make or it's easy to watch but rarely both <laughs> so so you know so if you want it to be if you want it to be easy to watch you need to put the effort into making it uh you put the effort into making it uh, go ahead robert that's super important looking at the quality of the interpreters but there's also the technical aspect that needs to be taken into consideration um, in terms of Zoom, you've got two opportunities here because you can use the just the straightforward spotlight effect um, on Zoom. That functionality is cheap and available. However, the, the, the right way to do it is to use the, um, the sign language interpretation option that is available in the paid packages of Zoom. So if you have a paid license, you have this option where you can assign a interpreter as a sign language interpreter, and then the people who are using that service can literally, like Eileen mentioned, move the interpreter to the place where it um, fits them best. The other thing about Zoom um, interpreting is that you can also change the size of that window. So if you have um, difficulties in, in seeing, you can make that interpreter larger or smaller, whatever you want. Um, and if someone has a presentation where it's showing something, you can move the interpreter away so it doesn't cover something. There's so many really beautiful things that that, that have been included in the app itself in Zoom, just from a, a technical point of view. Go ahead, Sherry. Hi, um, I would say what everyone has said is beautiful. Um, one thing that probably education wise for this entire um, group is out of the four providers, they 
Two of them do more than just what we call video relay service, which is what I was just talking about. We offer in-person and we do things um, like Robert just said, we really do teach how to use technical at its best ability. So to Brandon's point, we, we work with the client. We understand what it is you need. Uh, in an event, you typically would do in-person interpreters and captioning. And myself and another provider offers both at an event. Uh, we then understand who is the deaf. We, behind the scenes, make sure that the deaf is very comfortable with the team of interpreters that they want to work with. So when they show up at an event, it, we've almost done a like a dry run, and we understand what the content is. Interpreters are amazing. They actually study the content in advance. They understand the terminology. If you think about it, if your vocabulary is really in-depth, like Brandon's, then you're going to really want an interpreter that pairs very well with him. So he is... Um, he is, he gets to show up in his language the way he wants. I can reverse that coin and tell you that whenever I had an interpreter, because interpreters are not only for the deaf, the interpreters are for the hearing. And so I worked very well with both Aaron and Kama here and a large group of interpreters throughout the past eight years to understand my vocabulary. And it's just a fine dance that you get into. It's not difficult. It is um, really just having almost a collaboration in the very beginning. You can do Google searches on trying to find interpreters in any city nationwide, and we would any really good interpreting services company is going to understand the scope of the job. They're going to really pair to the deaf and they're going to practice before they show up. And it, it will it's it's a it's a beautiful way to integrate full communication access. And to Eileen's point, there are services that are paid. These services are not out of range with any other communication access that you would be paying for. It's all price parity in the market. And it is typically billed by the provider, uh, not by the deaf. And so all providers would represent the company and would be able to bill the companies directly. Good, Robert. Yeah, just to to Sherry's point there, um, we're referring to ASL. And I understand that the American community is very big, and we're referring to American Sign Language. But and different languages are spoken in different countries, and those countries, I think we have a question due about to that. cultural reasons, have their own sign language. So um, one of the other things, when Sherry was absolutely right, who is going to be listening to the, the, the um, sign language interpretation? And depending on what country it is, you've got British sign language, you've got French sign language, you've got all the, the languages you can imagine. And um, so who your audience is, is the key question and the way Sherry put it. I think we have a question related to that in the next question. So let's go to the next question. And it's from uh, Keith Harrison in London, UK. How does signing work for a global audience? For example, my understanding is that ASL and British Sign Language, BSL, are completely different. Go ahead, Sherry. Yes, that is accurate. And um, I will say to Robert's point, there's many languages. American Sign Language is the largest. British Sign Language is probably second in line. Uh, we have done global conferences at ZERS in purple, and you have to know who's going to sit in the audience. And Knowing the audience based on the event coordinator, we will hire um, sign language interpreters based on the language required by the audience. Yeah, go ahead, um, Brendan. Excellent, Brendan here. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, also, considering the difference, for example, uh, VFL uh, with different languages and uh, global, you're right, a global audience is it's super important. Uh, 
There are a lot of different signs. I notice I don't understand all of them myself. Just because I know ASL does not mean I know all languages, right? I have learned some, like you do a little bit in other languages, you'll learn a little bit. This is A and BSL, you know, and I know these are the vowels, A-E-I-O-U. So uh, even our alphabet is different. So it, it's definitely no different path than any uh, other spoken language. Go ahead, uh, Eileen. Yeah, I would say that, um, yes, it's different and um, that you cannot assume that because you know American Sign Language that you would understand another language in sign, another sign language. Um, also, America has a lot of Mexican Sign Language users as well. So ASL and Mexican Sign Language are very popular in America, um, as are you know people coming from other countries. They come here and they generally pick up American Sign Language, but you do go to some you know, large conferences like the World Federation of the Deaf, and you'll see um, multiple sign language interpreters interpreting. And there's also, um, I don't know how well used it is, but um, a, a, a universal type of sign language that is more gestural, that is sometimes used for people who know it. But um, just in general, you don't necessarily know one language, one Ameri one sign language, and you know the other's sign language from that country. That's that's not the way it is. It's not. Okay. Good. Good, Michael. Oh, e easy question, right? Um, I've got a question for everybody sitting here. Uh, how many sign languages are there out there in the world? Any guesses? Estimates? Thoughts? Over 200. Over 200 languages. Over 200 different signed languages. So, for example, one country in China, you know, even within China, they have 10 different signed languages because of the different regions within the within the country. So, uh, for example, and ironically, ASL is the most popular language. French sign language is where ASL was born from. So. The French Sign Language and LSM, which is our Mexican Sign Language. I happen to know the three different sign language, uh, Japanese, French, and a uh, American Sign Language. But bottom line, if I were to go to France, I would also have to learn their language. It would apply to, you know, the spoken language as well. You know, you know if you go to the UN, Everybody's wearing their headphones and you can hear all of the different languages. It's very similar to sign languages. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, and I just wanted to add one tidbit. Um, there's a lot of signing, but we all can gesture. Everybody can gesture. Typically, you know, I love, uh, you know, the, the Mexicans who come to America, right? And uh, the business and I travel in IT services, right? A small business. And I go to a building uh, where they, you know, uh, they all come together. You can almost gesture with them, you know, and there's a lot of understanding, even though we can't communicate with each other, we can gesture. That's, you know, how communication can happen. I mean, we all, we all have struggled in foreign countries to communicate. It's really gesturing is a, a universal language. And and one thing that we we have dis we have discussed on our end is um, the support of multiple 
sign languages in the same stream because of the way the streams are constructed. Um, and so there, there, you know, basically there are, and because if you look at the screen that we're outputting now to YouTube, um, you know, you have a window here and, and then you have, you know, the window that we have that's, that's here. And then we have the sign here, right? This could be replaced you know, basically replaced in the video. So in the cloud, we stream one version that's in the cloud with this blank and then simply composite the proper sign onto each one of those and then output them as HLS streams that are then selectable. And it's, it's a, we have not used it in a program, but we have discussed the possibility of it. And we, there's people in, in, in the groups that I've worked with and think that that's not that hard to do. Like if you have the if you have the ASL or not ASL, but if you have the sign, different sign languages applying, it's simply a video feed into the cloud that we then just simply set on top of each other with a very simple operation, and then send that package out as a separate either part of the HLS manifest or as you know that's selectable you know in that in that process. So it's just another stream that's going out. Um, that's there. And so we've talked about that possibility. We bring it up with with clients. So far, it hasn't, it hasn't, but we're slowly architecting it. And we may try to do that in these seven weeks, at least for one one show, just to see if it's, see what we can do as far as what's possible there. But it's something that we've discussed for about a year <laughs> of figuring out like, hey, because of all this cloud production that we got good at at COVID, could we add, just be able to swap the sign language out in that square um, as we move forward. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that, we'll see if we can make that happen before the end of this summer. Alex, uh, that would be great. This is Sherry. That would be great. And I would love to like invite different um, sign language languages. So yeah. when you're testing it, they could actually give feedback. That'd be phenomenal. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. That'd yeah. be, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, next, next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas asks, many software vendors in our industry pay only perfunctory attention to accessibility, if they do at all. What do you think would change that? Go ahead, Eileen. Um, so I think just having things like this, um, the community of people who are technically savvy being allies and supporters and um, knowing, oh, right, there's a need out there because engineers and uh, computer people are very much interested in solving problems. So I think that um, engaging the tech community in our challenges for people who have hearing and vision, all these different issues, because when you... Um, address our issues, our challenges, you probably are fixing issues that make the whole experience of being a tech recipient better. Um, so I, I, I say that we need hearing allies and we need uh, people like myself um, who has hearing loss to be in a panel like this and say to you, you know, it would be nice if there's the ability to set up the automatic captioning and um, to, for you guys to do this pre-test where we had to to test things out, I mean, that is wonderful because we know that um, if people who have no disabilities or very few like that, but people who are hearing or who have good vision, if they have to suffer, then 
they will fix the problem. If it's just one deaf person, one hard of hearing person, it kind of gets pushed away. So when everyone has to um, be accommodated, it really is a wonderful um, way for us to to improve technology for everybody. Um, so I think also just one example, there was a man um, who uh, was deaf and he used um, captioning and he worked with Google to create Google Live Transcribe and you know, there are things that deaf people can contribute to the world that are really valuable for everybody. And you need us. <laughs> and we want to be part of everyone's life, just like we are in your family and we are at your workplace. And um, so working together, I think, is what's going to help improve um, accessibility. Go ahead, Tim. I agree with everything Eileen said. Um you know, we just need to include people, right? So make sure you have people on your team and don't consider a single person with a disability to be adequate. Uh, you need to invite multiple disabilities into the conversation. So you need someone with with hearing loss, with vision loss, with mobility issues, uh, so that all of those uh, all of those topics can be top of mind so that they can be addressed. Go ahead, Brendan. Yes, yes. It's a question I love because, uh, you know, I've worked diligently. I've worked hard. And I think, you know, it's amazing to work with a product team that provides apps, you know, especially, you know, Meta, right? Uh, Facebook, Pix, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, you name it. I mean, we've got a line of products. I come in and I'm deaf and I have no access. So I have to explain this is what I need. This is what I need. It's very important. How do we change that? And by changing that, it takes giving people with disabilities uh, uh, opportunity to outreach, to go see them, to go understand them, to allow them to be a part of the world. You know, for example, I've noticed at Meta, all of our videos that are produced, everything that looks great, there's no, there's no, you know, people that are using sign language as opposed to you know other companies that are now including people with disabilities in their production and their in their videos. So if we had more companies out there that recognized uh, we still are very much a low percentage of those people uh, and people don't understand disability, they don't understand accessibility. It's still a great problem. but what we need is more people within companies with disabilities, you know at Meta, um, there are two of us uh, that I know, two of us. I'm one of them, and I've worked my tail off for four years and trying to educate and educate and move throughout and try to get leadership to listen, you know, all the way up to the CTO and giving ideas and partnering with other disability, uh, you know, community members. And we have shared and shared and shared and shared. Uh, we still have a long way to go. It's a big team. It's difficult. We need more people, period, doing this work. Well, and I think it's one of the things that I'm so excited about with this summer of us talking about these things is so that we can learn more about this, which I find fascinating, you know, and and um, and really, really interesting to to learn more about how we can make those. Because for us, it's additional services that we can add and additional things that we can bring in to add value to the streams that we're doing to a wider audience. So we're really, really excited about it. Uh, Harshid? 
what's so important today is we just talked about two groups, vision loss and hearing loss. And those groups as a whole and showing our usability and our need for it is really, really important. So one thing that I think that will make change is hitting up these companies and really being part of that process, as we are already outlining during this whole show, is we have to be the individuals that make the recommendations to make the product better. I use a solid state interface right now. The reason why is there's less software, there's more knobs, there's more tactile. And with any software, any hardware, again, it's the usability of it and then how we could show by numbers. We have the vision loss community, we have the hearing loss community, we have mobility, uh, you know, what what have you. We could put many different things. I also have MS, so why not add multiple sclerosis to the table too? It's a disability, it's ability, but what is our ability to stand together to make progress and make change is what's going to be helpful here. And I've already signed up for the uh, FCC, uh, the 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 process we were talking about earlier, the petition. So I've already signed up for that. Uh, it doesn't matter if I have vision loss, it still helps another community. So I believe in working together and I think we could solve these problems one thing at a time. And I think part of it is also for, for our group. And again, this is one of the reasons when Tim and I started talking about doing this and Laura started talking about uh, doing these is that a lot of it is figuring it out and making sure that people understand what it takes to do it. I think a lot of times people look at these problems and it's just a black hole of, I don't understand what I, how I would do that. Even going into this week, I was like, I hope this all, like this is all new for us. And so by the end of this summer, we hope to, this is just normal. Like we know how to do this. We know how to apply it. We know how to do, you know, add every piece of this and then we'll educate other people. You know, we will take everything we're learning and try to teach everyone else how we're doing it. At the end of this, we'll most likely have an hour where we just talk about what this pipeline looks like and exactly what we figured out over this last bit to make it hopefully a little bit more uh, uh, accessible, like in the sense that production people will have an hour to look at of, oh, this is how captions are produced. This is how ASL is produced. This is how languages are produced. This is how, you know, all those things can be done. Um, and and then that that becomes kind of a worksheet, hopefully a visual worksheet for folks to to make that work. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, and just not to go on and on, but uh, I would add, you know, to have leadership understand and enable, you know, that uh, a culture of assistance, right? And, and I think that's one of the biggest issues uh, at Microsoft. I know they have uh, a, a C-suite who has a a son with a disability. Um, so that can help. In Apple has um, multitude of employees within their organization. Um, Google, um, they have people who are understanding. At the end of the day, it's people in with disabilities in high enough positions to help influence decisions that are getting made. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Sherry. I just wanted to add, um, as a hearing person, it was very scary in the beginning, and I didn't know what I didn't know. And I've met with, you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world, the Banks of America, the Amazons, the Metas, and it comes down to everyone getting comfortable like what you're doing and putting a roadmap together and realizing it's really not that hard. It's not hard. If any of this was hard, you and I wouldn't have it. And then really sitting down with uh, each of the groups, the blind, the deaf, the disabled, and 
vetting it with them because they will tell you exactly what it is they need. And the technology is there. It's super simple to turn it on, to put it in a certain order that it makes sense. We're already doing everything. It's just we're including them in their language type. And it's just so wonderful, the first series for you to to run, to see that it's not it's not going to be a big leap for you. You're going to have this down pat. And I think you're going to set the path for all the media companies going forward to really figure out how to do it. Yeah. And we really want to dig into the finer elements of it. I know that we've worked with companies who, for instance, with captioning, I, I, one of my jobs has been uh, what we call caption captain for really large events where I spend three weeks just worrying about the caption <laughs> for, for the show. Um, and, uh, and in those senses, we talk a lot about, for instance, how the captions draw on the screen. And a lot of players for a long time just weren't listening to people that were actually using the captions because they would say, oh, well, it looks nice. And we were like, yeah, but you can't read it. Can't read it. <laughs> like the way it's coming out, like if it comes out from the center, we can't read that. You know, like it's not, you know, it needs to, it needs to roll. And 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 our, our, our observe, you know, we, and to your point, it's not new technology. We were like the U.S. government spent a lot of time figuring out the best way to read this, you know, 32 characters wide running at a, you know, three, it's three, uh, three lanes spin, you know, moving up so that you can see it. And it would be great. You know, like there's a reason that, 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 that we do yeah. it that way on TV. And then everybody started experimenting with like all these, everybody has these creative ideas on how to do it, but none of them are readable. And then we had to come back to just bring them back to, hey, let's just do the thing that actually works, you know, for the people who are watching it. So anyway, um, let's go to, let's go to the next question. And it's from Andy Kokendorfer from VR Florida. Are there artificial intelligence ASL services? Uh, Go ahead, Eileen. So um, I recently went to a conference and there's attempts to make something like that, but it's very, very, very um, new. And I would say at this time, that is not available, but there is a group working on that. And right now it looks to be not not quite ready for prime time for at least maybe I'd say five years and uh, just be very basic. Yeah, I I do motion. Ca- I did motion capture for a long time for visual effects, and hands and faces are the hardest thing to capture effectively. So it's the thing that we are probably the least good at um, as we as we go forward. Go ahead, uh, Sherry. So um, I agree, um, and I I think Brendan will pick the baton up right when I say this. There are seven to ten different signs for one word. And it requires with each of those signs, to your point, Alex, facial recon- or facial context. And so I personally, because I get this question asked all the time, will AI ever be in ASL? I don't think I'm going to be alive uh, when it happens because it's a beautiful language, but it is a very, very broad language. And I'm fortunate enough to know ASL and I'm learning every day and I'm it, it's it's regional. It's. And I'll let Brandon pick it up from here. I just do not see AI as coming in and helping. Um, And I kind of don't really want it to because there's nothing more beautiful than signing it yourself or being with an interpreter who can sign exactly what you're saying. Go ahead, Brandon. Yes. Well, um, yes, um, Alex, you're right. Um, I think that, and Sherry, you're right as well. Um, There's, it, it, 
makes it hard for people in general when you're talking about that with Meta. Um, I did try to push for the recognition of equality, you know, with a voice assistance. You know, I want the same thing. Somebody can talk and something opens up. I would love the same thing to be able to capture just to start there as I start signing something to open up or have that ability, have that feature. I've done some research and I've looked at several things and um, looking at what's the right thing to do or how to do it right. There's lots of differences. The signing spaces are different. The 2D, we don't have the 3D um, thing, but having it in 2D, it's possible. I would say that it's just going to be at the basic level for now. Over time, for AI to actually get, when it gets closer and closer to a human, more understandable of expression, emotions, facial expression, that type of thing, um, catching the sarcasm. Will, it, will AI catch the sarcasm that I have? Will it be clear? So that also um, rolls reversed on the other side, you know. I, if you look at um, English to ASL, so if you go English is going to be easier to go than, than ASL. So you have English moving to ASL, you're probably going to be pretty spot on with the ASL version of that, especially for basic things. And, you know, if you're at a hotel, think about if you go into a hotel kiosk and you're struggling and somebody speaks into it and it shows somebody signing what they're speaking, that that could be a, a benefit. But it's the, the challenges are so great that it's so far in the future. I think that... Um, Murphy's Law, you know, will it, I, I think it'll exponentially grow, right? Uh, 20 years ago, if you look at what we had then, comparison to what we have now, especially with cell phones and whatnot, we've made tremendous uh, uh, developments. So, so it's really exciting. Uh, and for the for our producers that are watching, uh, we're not going to get to all the questions in this hour. We're going to extend this just a little bit longer because there's so many questions that are stacking up. But we are. But make sure to vote on those questions to let us know which ones you are want us to prioritize so that we that we get to as many as we can. Uh, next question from Jason Robertshaw in Sarasota, Florida. Apps that can teach ASL recommendations, cautions, pros and cons of self-paced learning of ASL. Go ahead, Brendan. Uh, sorry, I was trying to get to that question. Oh, this one. Okay. Um, sorry, I just wanted to make sure I was on the right feed and the right question. Uh, repeat it. I'm so sorry. Just uh, so sorry. As a deaf person, um, I'm sorry. Do you mind repeating it? I'm so I'm so Not sorry. At all. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Apps that can teach ASL, recommendations, cautions, pros and cons of self-paced learning of ASL. Sure. Great. Okay. Um, so there are some apps out there, uh, ABCs, simplistic things. Uh, I would say go. To, you could go to YouTube. YouTube has wonderful or websites such as lifeprint.com. That's beautiful. They have a ton there. ASL VAT um, has a YouTube as well. That those are two that I would recommend that are wonderful. I think for basic signs and whatnot, you can do apps. Those are good to use. Apps are um, kind of don't go as far as you may want to as far as learning goes. Um, but web versions, web websites are different. So especially on an app like on your cell phone, it's relatively small. The best way to learn, I'm going to say, is going to be in person with somebody. Good, Michael. Well, one perfect example would be Sherry. <laughs> she actually learned ASL from the Z community. She works with uh, deaf employees. Um, and so she's, I know she's 
one of a good friend of mine actually works for her and uh you know very very fluent at ASL and never has you know never uses her their voice and can sign with her so the question is you know learning ASL always when you're learning it always make sure that the company that you're doing is reputable and um and maybe founded and developed by the deaf and, and for the deaf uh so there's going to be a lot of uh, controversy and issues that are going on especially right now on tiktok where there's multiple people that you know this is a sign for asl but in fact this person does not know how to sign at all so we've asked those types of people to stop doing that. They're making money, you know, because hearing people don't know the difference. If they don't know it's wrong, they they would never see it or catch it. And then also always learn ASL from, you know, us, <laughs> the deaf community. I taught ASL for 25 years. I uh, actually have uh, trained a whole host of interpreters out there. So always check to make sure that it's uh, with the deaf community where the best place to learn ASL is. Um, and, and don't make sure that you kind of set aside hearing people that don't know how to sign, use deaf only if you can. And the bottom line would be basically, um, there are different groups or categories out there. Um, I think that Z ZP should offer ASL classes. <laughs> Go ahead, Sherry. So thank you, Michael and uh, Brendan. I did learn from deaf through a deaf professor. I would uh, encourage you to stay off TikTok. It is a really big thing right now where people are just teaching it wrong, which is really unfortunate. Um, they're everywhere. Uh, for ZVRS and Purple, we're happy to guide you wherever you are. If you're a business or an individual, there's a lot of different uh, what I call community colleges that teach. But I am fortunate. I learned through a deaf professor. I took like classes five days a week. Anyone working at ZVRS and Purple that are hearing are required to be able to casually sign because it's important to us. We not only hire the deaf, but we service the deaf. And I would encourage all of you that no matter where you're living or where you are, uh, we would be happy to point you in the right direction to learn it and then get around the deaf. And they are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful community to keep you sharp and to let you continue to learn. Go ahead, Tim. Everything everyone just said, but just connect with people in the deaf community. Uh, learn from them, but also interact. Uh, find someone to talk to just so you can learn the culture and the mannerisms and the the jargon and the slang. I, I always view when I've, I've had a couple times in a airport uh, where someone's who is deaf is trying to figure something out and someone walks out of nowhere and just starts doing, you know, interpreting for them to get to figure it out. And I just view it as a superpower. Like, just like, it's, so it's definitely, it's been on my list. So I'm going to, I think we're going to try to figure out some way to, uh, to incorporate training into what we're doing is labs. We do labs often. And so we may try to incorporate some, having some of you maybe join us a little bit and see if we can't start building a culture of some of us knowing more about how to, how to do that so that we can, um, because I, I just, I'm always amazed at it. You know, when, when someone can do that, it's just, it's just really, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, next question. Next one from Harshid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida, here on our panel also. I believe Brendan mentioned something about being a technical engineer. Can you share more about what that entails, please? Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> so that's always something I like to answer. Um, Okay, my history is more of systems engineer, um, UX or hardware with uh, servers that actually support um, any kind of external, yeah, sorry, for AI, AI and um, 
learning how to use that and support that. So that's what I did at Meta. Uh, just that was my heavy focus. My world is interesting. Before Meta, um, I had no interpreter. I was just desperate, but just looked and looked. I had to figure it out on my own. I was then fortunate. Well, I was I was able to understand English and write English, but with an interpreter, it's a totally different world, I will say. Uh, so a lot of technical things that interpreters uh, are, are crucial. You know, they'll, they'll have to ask, can you repeat that? It just happened. You know, can you sign that again or spell that again? So an AI machine learning thing. So we have to teach the interpreter and they have to pick up the jargon and then they'll become proficient over time and better over time. Um, so that's why it's also important that you use the same interpreter. So they're able to pick up that language and understand it um, because it's just across the board. So learning again or repeating is not ideal. So you want to make sure you have that right interpreting group uh, supporting you or with you. So uh, the obviously the interpreter needs to know high level English. Um, there's not a lot of deaf people that are involved in the technical world. Um, my world is, you know, I, gosh, I, I'm I'm one of very few in the in the world, and I've been working for many many years in this community. So that's just me as an example. But there's a lot of uh, software engineers. Software engineers don't necessarily have to communicate a whole much, um, but I do. Yeah, but there's a lot of software deaf software engineers out there. So there's just it, it, what I do. It requires a lot of communication. So I went the hard way <laughs> without an interpreter for so long. But that's just my story. It was a good experience. Um, thirdly, there's there's more. Uh, a lot of people that are learning AFL, uh, it involves a lot of creativity and um, they enjoy learning and teaching it. And there's those types of people out there in that group out there. Um, I'm more of a... As an engineer, I'm more of a people person. I, I also had that expertise as far as English goes and, and the software engineering, the engineering portion. But that's just me in a nutshell. Next question. Jason Robertshaw from Sarasota, Florida has a question. What is the etiquette for recognizing the interpreter? Do you thank them, call them out by name, let them introduce themselves, or just sit quietly on the side? Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> That's actually my favorite question. Um, so first of all, uh, well, well, I will say for me, um, rule of thumb is, is that I use an interpreter all the time at work. Uh, I work at a store or at an office and I do have an interpreter with me at all times, five days a week, eight hours a day. Um, I'm very, very fortunate to have an interpreter with me um, throughout the day that I work because the company does provide that accessibility for me. Now, I always have this rule. When we're on Zoom, I will tell the interpreter to go ahead and put, as you notice, and I'm not meaning to um, to criticize or point out what the interpreter's here, but you notice that they have their first name there and then ASL interpreter. I actually ask them to not use their name at all. I ask them to just put in ASL interpreter because that is their role in the meeting or in the situation. So they should just put ASL interpreter and that is it. Um, they are supposed to um, be invisible, truly. So they are our voice and I obviously am the signing speaker. So if, for example, on Zoom, um, Alex comes into the room and Alex, you can always say, oh, um, here we have two ASL interpreters on Zoom. You know, uh, and so we know we can find them, right? And that's it. That's what I would say is appropriate. Keep it simple. And that's all. Thank you. Go ahead, Brendan. I agree with that. I have a little different perspective. Um, just 
because I actually use it in an environment. Um, use it in an environment. Sorry, this is the interpreter. Oh, I use it in the world for, you know, for uh, Meta. I use it in, at Meta with a different type of exposure, different type of env environment that we had there. So uh, generally speaking, I think that obviously an interpreter needs to be invisible. Uh, we don't need to thank them or whatever because the interpreter is signing that and then they're looking at me and then it causes a little bit of awkwardness. You're, like, you're talking to me, not the interpreter, right? So they're thanking the interpreter, but uh, why are they thanking me? So, uh, you know, it's thank you, Alex, for doing what you did. It's, it's a similar, similar thing, like thank you. And, and it's awkward. You know, I don't need to thank the interpreter and, oh, they're doing such a wonderful job. It's, it's just a little bit off. But I understand the perspective of doing that. I think that sometimes in some scenarios, um, I do like to acknowledge the person um, there. Uh, there's there's people that need to acknowledge that their that interpreter is there for them. Um, uh, maybe if they, they don't know their name also. So, so that's another scenario that you may encounter. Uh, it might be awkward because you don't know who they are. Next question. From TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The interpreter today was amazing. While watching her, I could pick up on the tone of the speaker just by watching her expression, and I never thought about that need. Uh, thanks for expanding my horizons. Go ahead, Eileen. Well, I think also that speaks to the importance of facial, ex facial expression, body language, all those things for communication. Because when you break down communication, a lot of what the meaning is derived from is the tone, the facial expression. And um, those things are so important. So an interpreter has to know how to do that. And when you see someone doing it well, you realize, wow, that really makes a big difference probably in the ability to understand what the person says. So facial expression is almost akin to tone of voice. So that you really need to be able to express that tone of voice and the question aspect and the rhetorical questions in your face. And um, it is great when you see it. And when for me, as the having the name of the interpreter on the the screen, I do kind of like to have first name of the interpreter, ASL interpreter for me, because then I can make a note and say, that's a good interpreter. I'm going to ask for her again or him again, or I'm not going to ask for him or her again. But I can see, you know, both way, both sides of it. Um, an interpreter is a very personal decision, and the person has to be able to provide access to the language and the information that is very specific to the topic. And um, so a good interpreter is a very wonderful thing. And we have the same issues when we're dealing with all interpretation of people who uh, know the subject matter, you know, really well versus the folks that, you know, we have some people that have interpreters that work with them all the time. We work in the, in the Vatican and the Pope has three interpreters that always there and we want their interpretation. <laughs> we don't want, because they listen to him all day. They, we don't want somebody else randomly to try to uh, interpret what he's saying because a small change in words is a complete change in the meaning. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Brendan. 
Yeah, exactly right. A small change in word, just like a small change in expression can be misunderstood for people. So my wife actually has a lot of experience with that. You know, she has facial expressions and then she's like, are you mad? Are you mad? No, 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 I'm not mad. So the interpreter, it's really important for them to match and use the appropriate tone, the appropriate facial expressions that it's not necessarily mean or they're not intending to be mean. So it can be off-putting to some people and how they react. And some things are very emotional and very expressive. So making sure you're taking that appropriately and you actually put people at comfort, um, especially when they're not used to facial expressions. And as you get accustomed to a person, then you know what they're like. Next question. Next question in from Grant Whitehead in Adelaide, Australia. What is the best way to test live captioning embedded in live streams before the captioning service is engaged? Uh, go ahead, Brendan. Uh, this is very important. I think somebody said earlier, like um, making sure that you have a dry run. That's so, so important. And at Meta, we would have dry runs all the time. I required it before anything, you know, two hours before whatever it is, making sure that you're testing it, making sure it works right, um, making sure it's all good to go. Not only the captioning, but how it's you're, you're framing up the interpreters or the captioning on the screen. Um, you can explain, you know, hey, this is the, this don't show me your don't show the interpreter show me. And so sometimes they think because the interpreter is talking, they show the interpreter, but they need to show me as well. So it is important that you do a dry run, uh, making sure that you have time to fix it if there are any issues. Yeah. And we worry about it all the time. Like I can just say as someone who does this a lot that we, we also want our interpreters and our captioners in the rehearsals so that they can figure out what what they can sort out issues with languaging and issues with technical um, and write, you know, write down what needs to be, oh, this is, this doesn't mean this, it means something else. And so uh, the rehearsals are important as well. Um, we often do private streams the entire day before the, before the event, watching all of those things before we, before we turn it on. Um, and then we still worry. <laughs> it's just, a, it, you know, the, the pipeline is very, uh, very complicated. Um, next question. And it's John Snyder from Reno, Nevada, asking, what should people who are speaking through a sign language interpreter keep in mind regarding tone, volume, cadence, etc.? Eileen? I would say that you should speak at your normal rate, your normal tone that you would be using with a, your regular audience. And be mindful that the interpreter will be using facial expressions and don't really pay attention to the interpreter because some people are like, oh, you know, um, I'm, I'm not happy how she's signing it or um, she's showing a lot of expression that I'm, I'm not really using. Um, it's best to just go on with your presentation, your speech, just as normal. And then the interpreter will be using facial facial expressions in, um, in the appropriate manner. So I don't think you need to actually change anything about your presentation other than not be standing in front of the interpreter or not, you know, watch the interpreter and, and you know, maybe make jokes. Please don't do that. Um, it's not appropriate. Um, just go on about your presentation just like you normally would. Go, oh, Cherry. So I'll come at it from a hearing perspective. Um, the interpreter will be standing to your right or left, and they will, they're will they communicating with the deaf. So you look at the deaf, you're talking to the deaf. To their example before, the interpreter is like a, a hologram. They're there for communication access. They're, they're there to do a job, which is communicate for you and for the deaf and have the communication be very seamless. The deaf will always keep their eyes on the interpreter, but you always keep your eyes on the deaf. And it's... um. 
it's a unique situation that doesn't take more than a couple of seconds to really get down. This is a little easier because it's Zoom, but in a presentation like Eileen was just describing when you're maybe on stage with them or in a group setting when they're standing next to you, um, a really, really good interpreter will almost feel like they're not there, which is exactly how it should be. Go ahead, Brendan. Yeah, perfect. Everything you said is is great. I did want to throw in there. It depends on the situation and who you're talking to and who's speaking. Just as I answered before and explained facial, facial expressions and might be frightening to see how reactive they are or whatever. Some people are loud signers and you just want to make sure that you're uh, signing clearly and, and, and you don't know there's different scenarios everywhere. You might be in a police situation somewhere. You, you just don't even know. So keeping in mind the scenario or the environment that you're in, um, there's different perspectives on that, but events, that's a good point, how you made it. Um, there's just keep in mind, there's different scenarios and you'll play them out differently. Good. Robert. And just from experience, I also noticed one thing that speakers who read read the pre-prepared text are very difficult to interpret because they tend to speak so much faster and keeping up with the pace of someone who has prepared a speech, practiced it over and over again, and is racing through it to get into his typical, I only have two minutes, so I have to fit it all in, really becomes burdensome for the message that's going through to the interpreters and from the interpreters out. I just want to thank everybody who came. So many new faces. And I'm, this is a great kickoff for our, for, for the first of uh, seven, maybe eight episodes. I, I'm thinking that the eighth one might be the, us uh, discussing how all this went and, and looking at where we're going to go next. So I think that there's probably an eighth one there that's, that's floating out there on the other end. I don't want to take up the seven because this one is just such a great second hour or hour and a half <laughs> or close to it. So we went a little long, um, but uh, thank you. Thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, I found the conversation fascinating just just fascinating and and really exciting and i'm really i think it's a great kickoff for our summer and we're going to be digging into all aspects or as many aspects as we can over the summer around accessibility and our goal is to slowly you know have our production team even um you know coming from the accessibility um uh, community and so so we're you know we, we we've already designed some things in our production package that is designed specifically um uh for you know you know, people who need to see, you know, we, we've changed colors and so on and so forth. And we're hoping to react to other needs um, as we as we move forward. So we're really excited about that. Um, so thank you all for coming. And hopefully you'll come back uh, even on some of the other subjects. We'd love to have your input and your questions um, throughout the summer. Um, thank you to the panelists, the rest of the panelists who have all been here uh, answering, uh, supporting us for the first hour and the second hour. Uh, we can't do this without you. Uh, thank you to the producers who are asking all those questions. So everyone watching and asking the questions, we also can't do this without you because we don't really have a, a long program. We have a, we will answer questions. <laughs> so, so we, so it's all up to you as to how we're covering it. Uh, were you going to say something, uh, Michael? Uh, uh, but um, yeah, no. So I just wanted to say we need to thank the interpreters as well. <laughs> thank you. And, and definitely thank you to the interpreters. So great. I mean, it's so uh, it's so great to have you here. Um, really, really um, an amazing experience. And uh, thank you for working with us on this um, as we as we figure it out as well. Um, and then finally, thank you to the entire team on the back end who we've, you know, was a was a a larger lift this week, trying to figure out how we're going to get all this stuff to work. There were a lot of meetings. There were a lot of trying to figure this out. There was a lot of technical things that we worked on. I just want to thank the the incredible team on the back end. There's a team that 
makes this uh, makes the show, plans the show. There's teams that that run the show. There's teams that develop software for the show. And uh, we just want to thank everybody for the contribution that you made. Um, you know, today we traveled the Tlaloc Traversal. Today we traveled 62,000 miles uh, answering these questions, 100,000 kilometers. And that is uh, 494 million bananas for scale. All right, there we go. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Got so many ideas. My brain is kind of things we can do. So it's very, very interesting. All right. We'll see you guys.